everybody. This is 372 Pages We'll Never Get Back. I am Connor Lestoka, and this is the podcast where we read books that we are not expecting to enjoy. We have covered many a bad book on this podcast, and our ninth one, The Lair of the White Worm, is as bad as we've covered so far. Uh, in fact, uh, my co-host, Mike Nelson, uh, has, has made some bold claims in his, uh, in, his, <laughs> in his comparisons of this book to me this week. Yes, uh, this was uh, off air. Hi, I'm Mike Nelson, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I went there, as they say. I compared it to Pappy Pariah's wow. book, Bob Honey. That's how much I enjoyed reading this. This <laughs> has taken a turn for me. <laughs> Those are words Whereas you can't take back. The, you know? Those are... I know, I know. I, I stick by it. I'm telling you. Um, yeah, it's just the the tediousness of having to figure out what this idiot is trying to convey. It is a <laughs> is wearing on me. Yeah, there's 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 stuff happening, and a lot of it seems to be you know sort of you know cliche cliche tropes. We understand sort of what these characters are doing, but the way that he describes it is is a mix of of obtuseness and weird, unnecessary like framing. Like rarely do we see something happen in person. We're usually told about it after the fact. And then in, when he does that, he uses uh, language uh, that is not ex- what, does not convey what he is, is trying to get across. Yeah, and he also he really accelerates his habit of saying, um, let's go into another room um, and then chapter end and then they start in the other room. I brought you in here because it looked like you might want to talk about this thing. <laughs> they begin to talk about the thing, which I guess if it were described as having, you know, occurring at the moment might have some small level of excitement to it but then they'll stop abruptly and go but enough about that now (laughs) we best get some naps in and i mean it at this point we were talking about it in the first reading he does it about 400 times in this uh, section it's truly remarkable and there are well there are some unexpected developments in this one. I said earlier that a lot of this stuff uh, relies on cliche. That was more about, you know, the the hypnosis and the, you know, sleep type of thing. But um, if you're not reading along with us, this is going to go into some directions uh, that for a book entitled Lair of the White Worm, uh, you're probably you're probably not going to be expecting. I think I think neither of us were uh, expecting the focus of this book to diverge so quickly and for such a long stretch of time. Yeah, I I'm not doing this as a teaser, ladies and gentlemen. Uh when you once we get into it, it it blows the top of your head off in terms of its <laughs> huh and in terms of its sheer raw incompetence. It is how he decided to take the book in this direction and what the hell he's talking about. I have zero idea and <laughs> I don't think we're going to ever get to the bottom of it. I I didn't look at any notes online or anything, but uh I, do, does it relate to some famous event in history or some famous person? I don't know, but we'll anyway. That's my teaser. Yes. It is uh, it is mind blowing. So, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but, let's uh, let's let's get to that. Uh, it, it's it, it happens in the in the second chapter we're going to be discussing uh, today. But in, before that, we uh, we start on chapter nine, smelling death, <laughs> which is uh, Golden Corral's new slogan, I believe, <laughs> as as well as uh, the title of this chapter. Yes. Uh, so it, uh, it starts off with the, the where we left off when Adam had just had his uh, mongoose uh, killed by Lady Arabella, and so there he's sort of planning out what to do next because the mongoose was how he was going to defeat these snakes. Um, so he talks with Sir Nathaniel, and they agree that they should not do anything with regard 
to the mystery of Lady Arabella's fear of the mongoose. I just thought I thought that was an odd way to put you know what she did to the mongoose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and also um, I love that their decision after all this talk once again. Uh, is to uh, not do anything, of course. <laughs> but then he has in italics, as though this is very important. However, in his course, in being prepared to act whenever the opportunity might come. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's how I love it when a plan comes together where you, uh, you know, if something comes up, I'm ready, but I'm not going to do anything right now. I love when that happens in a second act of a movie yes. where they decide to prepare for something. Right. I'll be prepared to act, but I'll also sort of like look left, look right, see if anyone else is really taking that first step before I... Uh... Sure, there's probably someone else who's maybe maybe more prepared than me. Right. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just the, the idea that she was... that The reason that she uh, pulled out a, a gun and, and, and pumped, you know, 18 rounds into the thing was because she was afraid was, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that the, uh, the toll booth attendant was afraid of Sonny Corleone. Like he was, right. <laughs> there was a little, something more going on here than fear. Uh, I'm scared. Blam, 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 <laughs> click, click, reload, right. blam, 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 blam. Smoke Still away scared. From muzzle. Yeah. <laughs> spin, spin gun on finger, like uh, a wild West trick shard artist out of terror. Yes. Uh, but the, uh, the plan is to, uh, he's, he's, since he doesn't have his mongoose anymore, he's going to, uh, hire Ulanga because he is the one who is, uh, he's able to smell death. Yeah, that was, uh, that whole part was unclear. That was one of the things already irritated in the first <laughs> chapter I'm reading because I had to go back and read. Wait, what is the plan? Yes. His new idea was to use the faculties of Ulonga so far as they could in the service of discovery. His first move, okay, so he's getting used along, <laughs> was to send Davenport to Liverpool. All right, who's Davenport? That Damn it. All right, very, we'll go back. Davenport is, has been mentioned twice before this, and that is, uh, okay. it is Adam's uh, man. It's his Ulonga. Yes. Right. <laughs> to try to find the steward of the West African who had told him about Ulanga and, if possible, secure any further information and then try to induce, by bribery or other means, the bad word, to come to the brow. <laughs> So soon as he himself could have speech with the voodoo man, he's going Charles E. Harris again yeah, here. It's Who's he? <laughs> he would be able to learn something from him, something useful. And okay, Davenport was successful in his missions. I'm still not clear on what the missions are. Right, because we did not know who Davenport was or what he was trying to do. I thought that Ulanga was living in the house with, uh, you know, the new Edgar. But it turns, I guess he's having to go back to the port to talk to the steward of the ship they came on. I just think it's, I mean, we've, everything we've heard about Ulanga has been like, you know, his, his feral nature and his sharp teeth. And he was Cruel, most certainly barely subhuman, yeah, clearly creature. was eating babies and, uh, you know, writhing in the dirt for, you know, a bath. And then he's like, Ooh, I'm going to cast my lot in with this guy. I like the cut of his jib. <laughs> yeah. Go to track, track down some death with this guy. But, uh, uh, do you know why Davenport was successful in his mission? I'll just continue reading. For he had to get another mongoose, and he was <laughs> able to tell Adam that he had seen the steward, who told him much that he wanted to know, and had also arranged for Ulanga to come to Lesser Hill the following day. Right, so he killed two birds okay. with one stone. <laughs> he completed his mission, because, look, I, I had to pop out for another mongoose anyway, so uh, I'll talk to the steward. Right, and he, and he succeeded, because he got uh, two small boxes, both locked. One of them contained a mongoose to replace that one that was killed by Lady Arabella, and the other was the special mongoose. 
which had already killed a king cobra in Nepal. So these we 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 talked we talked last time about what the special mongoose might be, and I guess it just has a a pedigree. It has already killed a king cobra. And uh, was that a well-known thing at the time, or is every reader learning that there are special <laughs> mongoose? Right. I, I don't know. It seems to me that you know the the, the mongoose he got, he went out and killed uh, eight snakes in less than thirty minutes one morning, right? So the yeah. the fact that it's killed a king cobra. It's probably just like when a you know a coffee shop is now trying to charge you three bucks extra to put CBD in your coffee, and you're like, I'm not, ch- I, you know, the snake's already a killing machine. I, uh, the fact that he, you're telling me that he killed a king cobra across the globe. I'm not really. I don't know if this is doing anything. Well, Connor, I mean, when you go to your local snake mound, I mean, how many does your mongoose get? <laughs> That's true. I mean, you know, I guess if I even if it was a placebo, it might be good to think that he had killed a king cobra in Nepal. But uh, let me, before we get bogged down, I'm going to bog us down anyway. <laughs> and it's the plan itself. Here's what it was. He arranged that Davenport should take Ulonga round the neighborhood for a walk, stopping at each of the places he was, which he designated. Having gone all along the brow, he was to return the same way and induce him to touch on the same subjects in talking with Adam, who was to meet them as if by chance at the farthest part, that beyond Mercy Farm. The plan is both riveting and foolproof, isn't it? What the hell is the plan? So Davenport is leading Ulanga around to smell death, and then Adam's going to sort of do a meet-cute in that he was coming around the bend. and uh, Ulanga! Oh, Ulanga, what are you guys doing? Are you out on a death-smelling walk? Oh, well, I was just happening along with my second-best mongoose. (laughs) Right. It is is a—the plan itself, uh, bad, uh, as described— Bad and incomprehensible. Plus, I mean, again, you're you're just out for a morning walk with Ulanga, <laughs> like <laughs> die, die. Right. Oh, okay, Ulanga, calm down. We're just out for a walk. So that's pretty much the the, the picture we've had painted of Ulanga. And then when he goes out, he uh, he he describes him as you know sniffing boldly, smelling death. Uh, there's a distinct enjoyment, and he walks around with, as Stoker describes it, jaunty impudence. Which you would, you know, you, yeah, I think of more of like, you know, little Lloyd Fronteroy licking his lolly. But uh, I guess the uh, the the, the uh, guy from Africa with filed down teeth eating rats is is jauntily impudent. He's he's sassily dropping his uh, little wispy handkerchief on the ground and taking little hits of snuff along the way. Um, so yeah, the the I, I, I guess he wants to smell death because he's suspicious of what might be going on at. Um, uh, Diana's Grove, a.k.a. Lair of the White Worm. Um, but we sort of move away from that quickly and get back into uh, um, him and Nathaniel discussing the staring contest yet again. It's unbelievable. Because <laughs> he says, Sir Nathaniel says, by the way, I forgot to ask you details about one thing. You did not. We were described. There were details <laughs> aplenty about this. It was very, very well described. <laughs> The last time you pulled me aside into the study to talk about this thing at length. Yeah. You don't. It was very much discussed. And the exact same description. Pigeon with a hawk <laughs> yes. or a bird with a serpent. Yes. <laughs> and, <sighs> yeah. Stay up 15 minutes past your bedtime and just keep the keep last night's uh, drawing room conversation going over the nuts and, uh, nuts and, and cigars. Like, just yeah. get it all out at once, man. <laughs> I hope the next time he does say... Um, you know, like, but enough about that. Let's retire first and get a good rest before we. No, no, because you keep forgetting things when that happens. <laughs> yes. We're going to we're going to march through this till the end. Damn it! <laughs> right. 
um, but then the uh, they do have the encounter with Lady Arabella. Um, the he and he's walking with his with his mongoose. I think just the normal one. I don't think the special one. Close to the gateway, he met Lady Arabella, clad as usual in tightly fitting white. Uh, which showed off her slim figure. To his intense astonishment, the mongoose allowed her to pet him, take him up in her arms, and fondle him. Yes. So this must be, yeah, the, the, the tight white stuff she's wearing must really be uh, working, working wonders on the mongoose as well. Um, so they also... I, I, th- I like that he says, to his intense astonishment. <laughs> that, would, that would astonish me as well. She started fondling my, uh, right. my mongoose. But there's no... So, you know, for all the, all the talk the, him, he's been doing with Lord Nathaniel, rehashing every detail, uh, I guess that just it's sort of water under the bridge that she, uh, you know, pumped 20 bullets into his last mongoose. Yeah, uh, not even a mention. Yeah, he hands the new one over, and um, it's just—it's uh, sort of just, I guess, an elephant in the room type of thing. Like if someone goes out and gets really drunk and tells you off, but you then the next day you're like, "Well, let's just—I'll wait for them to bring it up. They're not going to bring it up or apologize. All right, <laughs> keep on." Yeah, I—I I really hate conflict. I, uh, <laughs> hey, lady, that. Uh, Murdered my mongoose in front of my eyes hours ago. Here's my new mongoose. <laughs> and like, you know, he did just send Davenport to get a new one, which, you know, I, I can't imagine these mongooses are uh, you know, cheap, but it's uh, no, no mention of paying for it or compensation or um, anyway. But she does do something shady to this mongoose uh, because it slips away. And when, when Adam finds it, uh, it's sort of in this daze again. So like oh, yeah, she doesn't yeah. you know she she I think she maybe realizes she overplayed her hand um, by 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 blasting the other one with her gun and now she's just has put sort of like a, a hex on it um, and so pretty much uh, we get one more meeting with with Sir Nathaniel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I always look forward to those where he he pretty much just drops the nugget that that Caswell was friends with Mesmer who is the guy where Mesmerize comes from and we get more information about that later. Um, but then he goes, Adam goes back to his, uh, room and he, uh, opened the packing case where the two mongooses were locked up. There was no sound from one of them, red flag, <laughs> but from the other, a queer, restless struggling, having opened both boxes, he found the noise was from the Nepal animal, which however became quiet at once. And in the other box, the new mongoose lay dead with every appearance of having been strangled. I, uh, question for you. Can you instantly... Assess the cause of death of a mongoose <laughs> down to the very specifics of how he died. Yeah, I mean, unless it has like a cartoon, like eyes bulged out and, you know, blue face and it's going <laughs> with his tongue lolling out. Maybe then. But however, uh, not, a, not, a, uh, not an instantaneous uh, mongoose medical examiner. No, I, I also like the uh, he kind of. I don't think he knew how to describe the separate mongooses. So every time they came up, he said when he's out and he meets later Arabella, he goes with one of the mongoose, uh, not the one from Nepal. Like, oh, okay. All right. And then later he goes, the other mongoose, the one from Nepal. Like, that's that's how we're keeping our mongoose straight. I got it. I I understand. (laughs) And like, yeah, keeping the mongooses straight, like Adam, I'm sure, like, you know, he 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 opened him up and then was like, "Oh crap!" Was a special one on the left or the right? Um, but it also probably doesn't matter because I'm sure that the guy was like, "All right." Uh, the dealer was like, "Yeah, one mongoose." And he rummages around in the mongoose barrel, pulls it out, and he's like, "Oh, uh, and a special one, right?" Like, "Oh, sh- yep." 
Uh huh. Yeah, this is a special one. Killed a killed a killed a cobra in Nepal. Came out of the exact same barrel. But uh, <laughs> yeah, here's uh, here's a, a signed uh, piece of paper that he killed. It. Right. Frank, <laughs> just signed this piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, he obviously got taken on the special mongoose. Um, there's one other thing I just wanted to bring up. If this chapter's coming to a close here. Um, uh, Sir Nathaniel says, there are many allusions to the subject in memoirs and other unimportant works, but I only know of one where the subject is spoken indefinitely. It is Mercia and its Worthies, written by Ezra Toms more than 100 years ago. And I, <laughs> and I just thought to myself, hmm, who would the unworthies be in your... Oh, you know what? <laughs> just forget I asked about that. Yeah. Sure, we'll hear more about who they are later. Who would the uh, unworthies be? Ulanga pokes his head in the door like, he's, he's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yeah so that's the the riveting chapter of uh yeah one mongoose smelling death killed yeah, by, a, by a spell yes mm-hmm. and we move on to chapter 10 subtitled the kite <laughs> and what would the kite have to do with anything you might ask and that's a good question we will we will get to that but but first of all we're gonna yeah, I assumed when I first saw it, I was like, ooh, there's going to be a, an exciting thing where someone is uh, putting a check for a certain amount of money, and then there's not money in the <laughs> bank for it. The kite. Right. There's a sting. There's a, yeah, they're going to do some big uh, scheme. But, uh, oh, no. Quite no, literal. No. Quite literal. Yes. <laughs> um, but before that, we, we start with Adam describing Kaiswal staring at Lilla and Mimi um, to his uncle. Uh, and this is again, a, uh, pretty much, this is the second time this has happened, probably the fifth time we're hearing about it, but he, um, he goes, uh, Adam has paid them a visit, but then Mr. Caswell and Ulanga show up and he suspects that they are sort of like watching his movements cause they don't want him interfering with these two ladies. Um, and it starts off, Caswell was cool and collected, but, uh, it very quickly goes South. And so we get... A very odd scenario here, which essentially, as we've talked about, is Caswell hypnotizing Lilla or attempting to. But other characters get involved in it this time, and it's very, very clumsy. Um, it says, uh, it starts off, Mr. Caswell's eyes were, as usual, fixed on Lilla. She carried herself bravely. However, the more nervous she grew, the harder Miss, Mr. Caswell stared. It was evident to me that he had prepared for some sort of mesmeric, hypnotic battle. And then... Mr. Caswell's efforts at staring became intensified, and poor Lilla's nervousness grew greater. Mimi, seeing that her cousin was distressed, came close to her, as if to comfort or strengthen her with a consciousness of her presence. This evidently made a difficulty for Mr. Caswell, for his efforts without appearing to get feebler seemed less effective. So, one, Adam describes all this. He's there. He's in the room, but he's. We've given no indication that he is like incapacitated, or that Mister Caswell, like you know, has him longer restrain him. He just sort of sits there and watches him stare at this woman, aware that he's making her uncomfortable, aware that Mimi is trying to help her, but he does nothing. Uh, no. Later, it is described that they're they're worse off because he wasn't there. But th- right, no, yes. no indication that he's doing anything. <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> And this is an incredible description during this, by the way. Uh, a dozen times she seemed about to collapse in a faint, but each time on catching sight of Mimi's eyes, she made a fresh struggle and pulled through. A dozen times? <laughs> and, and I just thought about this entire struggle, which goes on many paragraphs, and it's it never gets more focused than that. Like, she would look over at him, and he would, you know, screw his eyes closer together and seem to mesmerize her. And I just thought... 
So this is like an action scene in this. But if, if my dad like came home from work right at that moment and they were all doing it, he's like, what the hell's going on here? Bunch of idiots. Get the hell out of my kitchen. You know, like nothing's happening. That happens the, in, in the next time they do this. They do this again. Spoiler. But yeah, the dad walks in and sort of like, you know, hey, everyone's having fun. All right. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a brandy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because he may, in the middle of all of these, he makes this other uh, he makes a disclaimer, like nothing about what he's doing was beyond the bounds of, you know, it was all very well-mannered and on the up and up and <laughs> stiff upper lip, old chap. Yes, uh, keep your pecker up and all of that. Uh, but they're having this titanic battle. Yeah, it's a, like I don't understand what is happening at all. No, and it gets it gets less clear as uh, as Lady Arabella enters, and this is regarded at, like later in the book. This is like cited as like a, a big moment, like she's sort of casting her lot in with. Uh, with Caswall, but it's it's also again very unclear what she's actually doing. It says she enters the room. I had seen her seen her coming through the great window. Without a word, she crossed the room and stood beside Mister Caswall. It was <laughs> so that's her. That this is her contribution. She goes and stands next to him, and that is somehow giving him strength. Um, you know, I guess evening out Mimi's contribution, which is standing next to her sister. Um, and she it says it really was like a fight of a peculiar kind, and the longer it was sustained, the more earnest and fiercer it grew. That combination of forces, the overlord, Caswell, the white woman, and the black man, would have cost some, probably all of them, their lives in the southern states of America. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if that's like a a weird, like, social commentary that he's just interjecting here, because this is not taking place there. Um, And there's been no indication that any three of them are planning on going to Alabama (laughs) or anything. Yeah, I didn't... uh... I've wondered, is that like a, a slam on the United States or, a, yeah, a comment? I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, it's too. <laughs> uh, we don't have to do his work for him. Right. Um, and I guess it does say that, uh, you know, the, the bond of will uh, which had held him inactive seemed like bands of steel which numbed all my faculties. Except sight and hearing, <laughs> which are, you know, you know if, if I was deprived of everything except those two, I'd be like, well, there could be worse things to have been deprived of, namely sight and hearing. Right. Uh, this thing goes on, like I said, five, six paragraphs, a couple pages anyway, mm-hmm. right? And he's telling Sir Nathaniel this. Yeah. I, I just wondered, I mean, he's an old guy. He's had a handful of walnuts. <laughs> couple wines there's no way he stayed awake with yeah, this exactly or if he was awake he would have heard like yeah move you know move it a little, you know, fast forward right. move it ahead a little bit right. i understand yep uh, battle of times, wills dozen times staring fainting yep. <laughs> you don't have to reenact each dozen time that that happened uh, <laughs> right. i can picture it I, i'm picturing it yep hawk and pigeon got it yep remember that from <laughs> yeah. the last time you told the story <laughs> But, uh, and then the the most baffling thing happens. Sure, yeah. So you'd expect a staring contest like this to end with you know her collapsing or uh, you know him being repelled and, and weakened. But uh, nope, it takes a takes a remarkably unexpected tor- turn here. Yeah, why don't you describe it? Because I still am not quite sure what. Oh my happening. god, I can read it. What he wrote to describe it, I have no idea. I, my own words, I would have a lot of trouble. But she, uh, right. so Mimi repels Caswell. I mean, so to to think back on the cliche, she is essentially doing the uh, the presenting a cross to Dracula and having him be like, ah, and so backs him out of the room. Right. Uh, so Lilla sits down in a swoon, and Mimi uh, throws up her arms in a gesture of triumph. As I saw her through the great window, the sunshine flooded the landscape, which, however, 
was momentarily becoming eclipsed by an onrush of a myriad of birds. From every part of the eastern counties, reports were received concerning the enormous immigration of birds. Where were the reports received? (laughs) How is, when you're describing the action of something happening in front of your eyes, reports were received? Uh, Maybe Ulanga has one of those uh, fedoras with a little press uh, tag tucked into the brim of it. He's he's an undercover (laughs) reporter. And then it says, experts were sending on their own account on behalf of learned societies and through local and imperial governing bodies, reports dealing with the matter and suggesting remedies. (laughs) Remedies were suggested. Tell me more about that. Right. Yeah. Enough with the action, please. Right. So this whole thing is, uh, it, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, later, but as people start sneaking around, the whole geography of where we are, because in my mind, these are there's essentially three houses, <laughs> Adam's House, Diana's Grove, and uh, Lord Caswell's Manor, that are all you know down the street from each other, if not pretty much the same property, but they're all of a sudden getting reports. There's news. There's town criers coming through here. This this plague is spread to all the eastern counties. So it's uh, it's very hard to understand where we are in relation to everything. Yeah, I think I brought it up before, but this is uh, this is Charles E. Harris again with the, <laughs> the, the, fast the three locations that are you know who knows how far apart they are, but th- th- you know each thing takes place at one of these three, and they creep between the three of them constantly. Yeah, so they're I guess they're just fairly close neighbors. I don't know. <laughs> it's the uh, the fort. The town and the uh, the Sioux uh, the Sioux village. So right. of this book. Doom Doom Tower, <laughs> right? Uh, Doom Tower, <laughs> Mer- Mercy House, or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So they uh, the the they torture. He tortured Caswell. Tortured his brain for a long time, unavailingly, to think of some means of getting rid of what he, as well as his neighbors, had come to regard as a plague of birds. I guess they were unable to think of a, a catchier name for a bunch of birds uh, invading. Uh, an epidemic of birds type of thing. I, I, there no, no one had the imagination of James Wynn is what I'm getting at. <laughs> right. But I like that like birds, <laughs> birds are blotting out the sun and they've just come to regard it as a plague. Like It sounds worse than like all of the uh, biblical plagues put together, but they're like, yeah, I guess, you know what? Now come to think of it, this is a real plague. These birds that are, <laughs> right. that are eating all our crops and, and, and blotting out the sun. Uh, yeah, and then more reports. They were more alarming than ever. Farmers began to dread the coming of winter yep. as they saw the dwindling. So I guess there's farmers. We we didn't really, that had not been mentioned before. <laughs> uh, and yet it was only a warning of evil, not the evil accomplished. Well, it's whatever you say it is. I don't, I don't even know what the hell's happening. So <laughs> right, <what>? exactly. <laughs> it sounds pretty evil. I mean, if the farmers yeah. are getting worried, um, and it seemed to have sprung out of a evil hypnotic attempt. So, um, if he was just trying to, to make this lady faint and then all of a sudden he summons, you know, countless pigeons in a plague of birds, that seems like if he's able to do that, that should be his focus, I guess. I guess, and this is where the, the baffling turn, though. So it talks about them seeing this, and so their battle is interrupted, and then it switches, and, and like you just read that thing, Edward Caswell tortured his brain for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that was my first thought. Hey, how's Edgar doing, man? Right, yes. What's happening with that guy? I hope he's doing all right. Oh, he's torturing his brain? Oh, 
let the authorities with their uh, remedies that they're suggesting deal with this. <laughs> Don't trouble Edgar. And I naturally assumed that, yeah, yeah, of course, we're getting some information about Edward Caswell's tortured brain, but it'll be quickly moving back to our main character, Adam, back with his buddy from Doom Tower. But uh, no, <laughs> we shift. Uh, the, the book takes an interesting turn here, and it shifts entirely into Caswell's point of view because he's about to take a very unconventional method of dealing with these this plague of birds. He knows that the ancient Chinese secret for uh, bird plague removal are big kites. He says mm-hmm. that he's gotten wind uh, that the, the, the remedy that really works is something Chinese farmers use, which is uh, building a big kite. And uh, we're just going to have to read this to you because it's not going to make any sense unless we give you it in his own words. The Chinese farmers, who were more or less afflicted with the same trouble every season, knew how to deal with it. They made a vast kite, which they caused to be flown over the center spot of the incursion. It was shaped like a great hawk, and the moment it rose into the air, the birds began to cower and seek protection, and then to disappear. As long as the kite was flying overhead, the birds lay low, and the crop was saved. Accordingly, Coswell ordered his men to construct an immense kite, adhering as well as they could to the lines of a hawk. Then he and his men, with a suspicacy of cord, began to fly it overhead. The moment the kite rose, the birds hid or sought shelter. But there in turn, what followed in turn, proved an, a worse evil. All the birds were cowed, their sound stopped, neither song nor chirp was heard. Silence seemed to have taken the place of the normal voices of bird life. But that was not all. The silence spread to all animals." A lot to unpack here. (laughs) Yeah. So he hangs a big kite in the air. The birds cower. It's shaped like a hawk. But they don't fly away. They just go silent. Yes. They're still there. So they're hanging out. (laughs) And then it spreads to uh, all the other animals. Sure. So there's a big uh, kite shaped like a hawk in the sky. So the cows stop moving. Gotcha. Yeah. Basic stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and it says that in the in the place of these things was only a soundless gloom, more dreadful, more disheartening, more soul-killing than any concourse of sounds, no matter how full of dr- full of fear and dread. After a little while, there were signs of universal depression, which those who ran might read. One and all, the faces of men and women seemed bereft of vitality, of interest, of thought, and most of all, hope. And this got, this got a firm settle-down stamp from me because it was... Uh, it's a kite in the sky, people. Um, humanity's been through worse. <laughs> we'll go through worse in the future. Um, so maybe just, uh, you know, don't look at the kite if it's making you so depressed. But, oh man, P- people listening, you sense our exasperation. <laughs> Help me out here. So here's, so that happens where the whole land gets silent and people, you know, it's, it's like, uh, the storm in Macbeth, you know, horses breaking out of their stalls and eating each other and, uh, you know, dread voices in the air, foul voices and all of that. And, uh, but let's check back in on Edgar. After a few days, men began to go desperate. Their very words as well as their senses seemed to be in chains. Edgar Caswell again tortured his brain to find any <laughs> antidote or palliative of this greater evil than before. He would gladly have destroyed the kite or caused its flying to cease. Well, okay. Sure. He, he made it. But the instant <laughs> it was pulled down, it was pulled down. I guess he's doing the pulling down, but whatever. The birds rose up in even greater numbers. Why does he... He's evil, right? Yes, extremely. So we're, we're worried about the evil guy getting kind of depressed. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to think about this Edgar guy. Well, I don't get it. Yeah, it's it, 
why why it has shifted away from the the characters we spent the first third of the book with is baffling uh why he um is sort of like the lord of the uh i guess this area because all the farmers are protesting that their livestock has gone uh silent because of this bird kite so i yeah i'm not sure exactly why he cares about their suffering but uh we're <laughs> we're gonna get a lot more t- kite talk so maybe the answers will come to us as we uh as we progress and I, and I promise you, people, if you're not reading along, the kite talk to come <laughs> makes this baffling kite talk seem like pure crystal and clarity. <laughs> I couldn't make heads nor tails about what's to come. It is baffling. Well, Brom sort of says right here, he, he lays it all out for you uh, in, in does not mince words. It was strange indeed what influence that weird kite seemed to exercise. As if Brom is sort of like... Ah, uh, I really got nothing. You guys are looking for an explanation here. It's strange. It's weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he didn't know why he wrote. He would wake up and realize that he'd written another kite chapter. I don't know what to make of it. I take my hands off the wheel. Um, but yeah, they, he says that uh, everyone suffers Badulanga. He seems to enjoy uh, everyone else's suffering. So again, just a, you know, a great guy. You can really t- pick up on his jaunty demeanor here. Yeah, but he calls – so even Edgar Caswell calls, calls the kite that spot of evil in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's the evil guy. Right. Uh, he should be happy then. It's like it's Mr. Burns blotting out the sun. What, what is the problem here? I guess it's like the uh, – you know, like the, one of those rabbit, uh, rabbit in Australia scenarios where they brought them in to – what eat, eat eat some sort of pest, but then the rabbits became right. the pest. It's it's one of those. It's uh, you know, man's hubris, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> one man's hubris. One evil man. But uh, yeah, uh, that's that's the end of that. I think. Yeah, we get a little check in on Lady Arabella and Mister Salton and Mister Watford. Oh, yeah, they're all doing poorly. They're doing poorly. Mister Watford. <laughs> I don't remember who that is. I have no idea. I think that's the father of the two girls, of Mimi and Lilla. Oh, he's the one who uh, waltzes in with the paper later during the next. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, yeah. So the next chapter uh, picks up essentially where this one loves off. It's called Mesmer's Chest. Um, And it's, uh, yes, still it's it's still a Caswell chapter. But uh, it starts off uh, a couple weeks have passed. Um, and after a couple of weeks, the kite has seemed to give Edward Edgar Caswell a new zest for life. He was never tired of looking at its movements. He had a comfortable armchair put out on the tower, wherein he sat sometimes all day long, watching as though the kite was a new toy, and he a child lately come into possession of it. He did not seem to have lost interest in Lilla, for he still paid an occasional visit at Mercy Farm. All right, this is the point at which I thought, did Bram Stoker wrote... Two Edgar Caswell kite novels <laughs> and then jammed them together at one. One is about how sad he was that he had made an evil kite. The other was how delighted he yeah. was. <laughs> and somehow he just uh, put them together and hoped that it would work. Uh, what the hell is going on? Yeah, he, he's having it both ways. He's, he's sort of uh, starting to become a Howard Hughes type of figure. He's, you know, he's got a comfortable armchair out there, like a lazy boy out on his deck so he can sit and look at his kite. Um, he's, you know, he, he's pretty much a kid in the candy store. Yeah, I pictured uh, who was the uh, the evil head of, in Schindler's List, the, the Nazi who enjoyed looking out over the misery and oh, everything, God. you know, <laughs> sitting in his chair, like smoking and with a shirt off and, uh, <laughs> yeah. ah, my kite. <laughs> 
Um, he's got one of those yeah. recliners with the fridge in the side of it, so he's just fumbling around for a pull out a PBR or something for him to crack and look at his kite. <laughs> uh, but seriously, there is no way to reconcile the two things. Nothing happened in between. I mean, is the, did he abridge the hell out of some chapter of uh, called you know Caswell's mind completely changes about the kite and then. <laughs> <laughs> ah, we don't need that one. People will understand. Well, you know? yeah. I mean, as as this chapter proceeds, he's he's clearly uh, well. It's it's in the next sentence. Well, well, first of all, it's very interesting that Lilla still lets him visit for for these occasional visits. But um, the uh, it says the villa visible change in Edgar was that he grew morbid, sad, silent. The neighbors thought he was growing mad. He became absorbed in the kite and watched it not only by day but often all night long. It became an obsession to him. So yeah, you'd say uh, you'd you, the HOA, you know, who's taking this up, like when your your neighbor like stops mowing his his grass or something like that. Usually, you you sort of mock those people, but I, I've got to side with the neighbors in this matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and he also says that here's a puzzling sentence about his internal the the Caswell internal life is something you'll never track if you try to read this book. It is baffling. <laughs> uh, indeed, it seemed as though the man's nature had become corrupted and that all the baser and more selfish and more reckless qualities had become more conspicuous. Mm-hmm. What the hell are you talking about? They had a huge witchcraft fight a few days ago, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And then he flew an evil kite up into the air and caused the whole land to come under a plague of depression. I'm starting to darkness. think this guy might not be right for our community. <laughs> like I nearly made the girl faint a dozen times as I sat there doing nothing about it. Well, the more I see this guy flying those evil kites, the less I like him. <laughs> the guy with the uh, with the uh, African slave who is uh, evil personified who got off the boat and you know was you know killing people's sheep. So I, I, yes. I'm not sure about him. All right, this now we get to the point where I just wrote in in all caps, uh, Bram put the pen down (laughs) what in the name of hell is going on with these pieces of paper that he cuts and puts what in god's name is happening we have to explain this of course yeah uh, he gets into some some serious kite logistics which you know when you pick up a book called layer of the white worm that's what you're sort of expecting he had a vast coil of cord uh, efficient for the purpose which worked on a roller fixed on the parapet of the tower there was a winch for the pulling in of the slack the outgoing line being controlled by a racket so it's like it's like (laughs) david foster wallace talking about tennis you know, like all yes. of a sudden he's just getting into these details that even a kite enthusiast would not be interested in. Um, but so, yeah, it became a uh, one of the curiosities of Castor Regis and all around it. Edgar began to attribute to it in his own mind almost human qualities. It became to him a separate entity with a mind and soul of its own. So what do you do when your giant evil bird kite uh, mm-hmm. gets its own mind and soul? You start writing it messages. <laughs> And this being idle handed all day, he began to apply what he considered the service of the kite some of his spare time and found a new pleasure, a new object in life. Okay, this is important. <laughs> a new object in life. In the old schoolboy game of sending up runners to the kite. All right, I have some questions. Yes. Bram, Bram has the answers. The way this is done, oh good, is to get round pieces of paper so cut that there is a hole in the center through which the string of the kite passes. The natural action of the wind pressure takes the paper along the string and so up to the kite itself, no matter how high or how far it may have gone. 
cutting out round pieces <laughs> of paper and sending them up to the is a schoolboy's game, first of all. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but a, this is uh, what this is his new object in life to cut donut shaped pieces of paper and put them on the string <laughs> of his kite. Yeah, I, I suppose I guess it's what schoolboys would do when they couldn't find a, a a suitable like hoop to push with a stick. But it's uh to that to their seems credit to have almost no ability to amuse especially more than for 30 seconds i mean the paper's <laughs> gone right away right sure so, so if this is if this is something that people were doing for fun because there was you know three things to do for fun in Bram Stoker's era, era like they would not need this explained to them then it would be like him going into a, yeah a digression about um you know, he, he picked up a controller in order to control the video game avatars on the screen by pressing the various buttons. He could control their uh, kicks and punches as they attempted to. Right. It's like, <laughs> uh, well, but, Yo-Yo is a small, you know, chunk of wood rounded with a string. Yeah, yeah, you don't need that. Right. But then, so I feel like this is something I've maybe heard people trying to do. I don't know. I, I also don't know if the book The Kite Runner, which was a popular book about a decade ago, is about people sending things up these things. I don't know if that's true. I don't think so. I think it's that he runs through the, the streets. With a kite? Is what I, okay. I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, it, it does become a central thing. So I, I guess I, I feel like I had heard of this being something you do when you fly a kite. I don't remember where. I'd never done it myself. But... But how are they? He calls them messengers. I don't understand what that means. In what sense, a sending a kite, a piece of paper, is a message? I mean, that's how he he's writing whatever he writes on there is like you know how was your day, kite? Um, you know how about the <laughs> but, how, but how about the mimicking, we're having? But if it's mimicking other people doing it, they weren't sending messages. They're just. I guess enjoying watching a piece of paper go up a string, right? I mean, there's nobody on the kite. <laughs> no. It's not got got it. I'm I'm up here. I'm holding on to one of the cross sticks. I got your message. Nobody he, he it's thinks really they, funny. He thinks it has a mind and soul of his own. I know, but but nobody else would I'm talking about other people doing this. Why would there be any Oh, a normal person? Yeah. Well, because Why, it's 1890 and there's nothing else to do. Okay. I mean, right. have you ever flown a kite like you get it up there and you're like, "Well, this is it." Yeah, <laughs> that's why we used to uh, strap. Uh, uh, we have box kites, you know. You know, sure. box kite is. Yeah, and you bu- you buy them in little kits, and we strapped uh, twenty of them, just glued them together into a giant box kite, and it had such pulling force. We put a kid in a wagon, and he went <laughs> down the street at like forty miles an hour. Wow! <laughs> and crashed. It was. It made quite a stir around my neighborhood as a kid. Anyway, that's the most fun I've ever had with a kite. Did so. did all did did remedies come in from various neighborhoods to uh, help yes, him when he Yes, of course. <laughs> the farmers were very depressed for a while, but uh, <laughs> All right, well, we're going to get more of this runner crap, but that we'll let it go at that. I just don't understand. So he's going crazy, <laughs> but he's also depressed, but he's happy. He thinks the kite is his friend. Yeah, he's got his, his easy chair. Object. Like he's having his, a good his, time out there. He's dragging a cooler up there. He's got his flip flops on. Cooler's okay. full of jars of his own urine. Um, I, I, I like this uh, this description of his activity. Uh, it may be that his brain gave way under the opportunities given by his illusion of the entity of the toy and its powers of separate thought. From sending messages, he came to making direct speech to the kite. And I read that, and I was like, oh, man. Uh, he described how these messages worked. Uh, I was getting really into them, and now he's talking to the kite. But then then I kept reading the sentence, without, however, ceasing to send the runners. So 
<laughs> he's talking, but he's still sending the runners up. And that was a big relief to, to all well, those runner heads out there. Also, at this point, it's like I'm rubbing my hands together going, okay, I don't understand the little runner things, but uh, making speeches to the kite. All right, what do you got, Edgar? <laughs> We don't get we don't no, get any no of the examples. speeches to the kite. Yeah, come on. You'd have to imagine he's you know cursing at it like the the the, the golfer in the storm in in Caddyshack type of thing. But maybe he's just uh, yeah, sort of like appreciates having to someone to talk to about his day who's not Ulanga. Right, and well, so we get away maybe a little bit away from the kite with the uh, his uh, collections. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He has uh, he has collections of of every type of weapon. We're we're given uh, a description of those, and Ulanga is frequently asking if he can sharpen or polish them, which is probably a red flag. Um, he also has a weird collection of uh, stuffed serpents of the most objectionable and horrible kind, giant insects from the tropics, fearsome in every detail, fishes and crustaceans covered with weird spikes, and dried octopuses of great size. So, you know, just, a, you know, one of those type of collections that he, he must have brought with him in his trunk when he got off the West African boat. Right. This was not, he's returning after how many generations away? So, Oh, he's he, like he the seventh Edgar. I don't know. So when it says he had in Castor Regia, it, it did mean that he brought them, right? Uh, yeah, I, I guess he could have, they could have been like the, the family jewels type of thing. Hmm. The weird, right. weird spiked fish. <laughs> uh, then we get a great uh, a sentence here. Uh, the next step. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, that one I've already talked about. That it had a fascination for Ulanga goes without saying. Like, Damn it. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, no You've kidding. been gassing on about this kite for three chapters. Yeah. I've completely forgotten about your racism. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Last you left us with, he was jauntily, you know, skipping down the path with uh, behind Edgar. So Right. He not- made two new friends. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Ulanga's polishing his stuff, which I have to imagine comes into play later. But uh, then we get, uh, I thought this was a very just uh, funny, clumsy aside. Uh, his his servant, Simon Chester, comes and talks to him. And so he's giving him a little bit of history about the house. Um, and he says, uh, Indeed, sir, everything is here in the tower that has ever been put away in my time, except, he starts to shake and tremble, except the chest which Mr. Which Mr. Edgar... Uh, he who was Mr. Edgar when I first took service brought back from France after he had been with Dr. Mesmer. So I had forgotten that all the people who live here have to take the first name of Edgar in order to That's take right. over the house. So every time he talks about another Mr. Edgar, he has to say, well, he was Mr. Edgar then. Like, like the artist now on, known it's just, Prince. It's, yeah, it's my Edgar, okay? Uh, it's not, you know it's not you. Like, yeah. yes, I understand that. It's all the different people who have, uh, you know, taken up uh, being Batman's Robin type of thing. Right. <laughs> uh, so this uh, Simon, uh, what is his name? Simon Simon Chester. Simon Chester talks about the chest with uh, two steel bands around it. Uh, so he he gets it. And uh, he says, how do you open? I don't know. I've never opened it. <laughs> uh, so that's it. He gets he gets the chest and, uh, and he, pretty, he just hangs out with it. Yeah. He, well, he also is like, you know, he pretty much is like, that chest is evil. Please do not touch it. It contains secrets which Dr. Mesmer told my master and told them to his ruin. So Edgar is like, sounds great. Like, bring it on. Right. Uh, but it ends with a quite a shocking uh, chapter end, as 
as we've grown accustomed to with uh, Stoker. Mm-hmm. The old man bowed deeply and went out trembling, but without speaking a word. Ooh. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Ooh, spooky. Right. Well, if you if you were reading this chapter by chapter, you might be wondering what his parting words were if he did not include that he didn't say any. So you, you don't want to, like, you know, put the book down for the night and wondering about that. So Right. <laughs> if Simon Chester would have been fixed in my mind as just sitting right there, never <laughs> leaving that room. So I, I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, well, we, we move on to chapter 12, which is the chest opened. Um, so, uh, our main characters at this point have not been heard from in many chapters, many pages. We don't know what Adam is doing, his grandfather, Sir Nathaniel, Lady Arabella. Um, but we're, we're, we're a hundred percent in on Edward Caswell on Edgar Caswell on his, and his kite. This is, this is all the book is now. Uh, this, uh, I said uh, at the beginning of this, I nominate this chapter to be sent immediately to hell and wiped <laughs> from the book of life to never be discussed again. I, it is like the biggest waste of time. <laughs> uh, that is saying quite a lot. Yeah, so he, 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 he sort of does shift his focus a bit from, from observing the kite to observing the, the new trunk he's been given, Mesmer's trunk. He woke in the morning at daylight and resumed his patient but unavailing study of the trunk. He lay down on his bed in the dark, still brooding over the mystery of the closed trunk so i don't know if he's going to start sending messages to the trunk as well but he's uh he's sort of splitting his focus here but the beautiful through line of people thinking about doing stuff but then going to bed continues <laughs> after sitting opposite to it for some time and the shades of evening beginning to melt into darkness he gave up the task i don't know what the task was went <laughs> right. to his bedroom after locking the door of the turret room behind him and taking away the key he woke in the morning at daylight and resumed his patient but unavailing study <laughs> of the metal, metal trunk. Yeah. So if we were like, uh, if, we, if this was like a, you know, a paranormal activity found footage movie and we just had a, a webcam mounted in his room, he would, uh, he would go to sleep. He would sleep. He would wake up. He would look at the trunk and then he would go to sleep again. Um, except when he is uh, finally in his sleep able to lift the trunk. Um, which is a he has to use an amount of strength which was he knew far beyond him in his normal state, but uh, he's able to uh, in his sleepwalking state uh, hoist it up on his chest, uh, to hoist the chest on his shoulder and carry it up to the turret room. And I was I was only able to picture uh, the like penultimate scene of the room when Tommy was I was trashing everything and just picks up that you know eighty pound CRT TV and just throws it through the window like it's nothing. <laughs> yes. So that's what I imagine as he's lifting uh, lifting the chest up to the turret room. And then, uh, like you mentioned, we do get that. He brings it up, then he comes back downstairs. Uh, utterly bewildered, he sat down in his room to think. Now, for the first time, he felt that he was asleep and dreaming. Presently, he fell asleep again and slept for a long time. <laughs> he awoke hungry and made a hearty meal. Then, towards evening, having locked himself in, he fell asleep again. <laughs> so, he, in one sentence, he thinks he's asleep. In sentence two, he falls asleep. And then in sentence three, he falls asleep yet again. <laughs> and he keeps... Uh... So he falls asleep and then wakes up and and he once again opened it whilst asleep, but he had no recollection of the circumstances. So we get a chapter of a guy eating meals, falling asleep, looking at a trunk, forgetting if he'd opened it, remembering that maybe he did. Uh, And all the time the kite is going... Hello? Yes, exactly. Sir? <laughs> He's, Where are my notes? My cute notes. Have a good day at school. Right. I'll pick you up later. I am so proud of you. Yeah. Well, don't fear. Do not fear. 
Uh, okay. Because uh, he starts he starts realizing that notes aren't the only thing he can send up the kite. He starts to uh, sort of make these wood uh, bracelet type of things and send them up the kite. I guess sort of uh, he's you know he said, "Do you like me?" Check one, and the kite checked yes. So he's now giving it jewelry. Um, and then he is uh, he he found out that the lifting power of the kite is considerable. He then is determined to take a step further and send to the kite some of the articles which lay in the steel hooped chest. Um, so he's he's managed to open the, open the chest without really uh, in the middle of the night. So he doesn't know how, but there's always weird artifacts in there, a bunch of glass stuff. Um, but there was one small copy of an ancient Egyptian god, uh, the god of Bes Bez, who represents the destructive power of nature. And he says the strangeness of the figure and its being so close akin to his own nature attracted him. He made from thin wood a large circular runner and in front of it placed the, placed the weighty god, sending it up to the flying kite along the throbbing cord. So he's sending up Egyptian god statues up to the kite. Um, truly, utterly insane. It is insane. And I did note that uh, we probably had uh, up the throbbing chord in uh, E.L. James' book as well. <laughs> probably at some point. Uh, yeah, so we never got the sense. What is your sense of the scale of the kite? I mean, it's titanic and it's holding these these statues. So I was... But it's only at this point where I started to ponder the size of it. I assumed, you know, I don't know, five times of, uh, the size of a, you know, like the bat kite you used to buy for a dollar fifty at right. the store or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it was something that is seen from from way off the distance. So I was thinking, like, uh, you know, bigger than a small airplane. Um, you know, how they built that, I have no idea. But it, for it to have such an effect on the livestock and mood of everybody, you would think would have to be pretty big. But um we're it's another detail we're not given and the the wind is blowing these these things up the right as well as the uh i i think yeah all we're supposed to take away is that there's so much wind that's supporting the kite that it just shoots all these things up and they're just sort of pooling at the top underneath the you know wherever the line is attached to this enormous evil bird all right (laughs) (laughs) i like that he he found this uh thing of bez who's the destructive power of nature. And, you know, he's one of those guys that's like, yeah, I see a lot of myself in there. Like, uh, you know, like when bands, when bands describe all their influences that are all just like 10 of the most popular bands of all time. He's like, yeah, there's a lot of bears inside me. Sure. There's some Hoth too. I got some of his qualities. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) settle down, man. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, that's the, uh, that's the end of that chapter. Um, do you want to do, uh, you want to do some real or fanfic? Absolutely. And now I bet they bitchin' cause my flow switchin' Trying to tell me what to write about some fan fiction Can't they just be happy? I no longer have to face eviction that I'm Okay, real fanfic, we, uh, quite, a, quite a change This yeah. is revolutionary it, This is just simply not done, sir this is, uh, <laughs> this is me challenging Connor Well, it's actually you uh, challenging Connor. Uh, yeah. Never been done. How are you feeling about it, Connor? I'm not uh, not entirely confident. I think uh, the, if you had given me fanfic about a enormous kite in the last session, I would have assumed you were lying because it's insane, of course. So what uh, what mysteries await us in the, the back half of this book, I have no idea. So I'm, 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 I'm hoping to get 50%. All right, let's just do it. Let's go. We have, uh, we have four of them today. Again, for people listening out there, these could be, they're either fanfic or they're real from the book. Uh, all could be one or the other, or it could be a mixture of both. Got it. So uh, that's what uh, our uh, intrepid Connor has to puzzle out as I read these uh, things. So here we go. This is number one. 
I do wonder that such a thing could find its way to a Roman-era grove. Heavy thing, too, muttered Sir Nathaniel, but a qualified man couldn't elsewise mistake it as distinct represent- as distinct a representation as it is. Here is the dwarf war god, or more accurately, demon, although demon itself misrepresents the thing in our language. As long before us as the Romans encamped upon this rise, the peoples of the Nile would have, as a protection, carved this figure upon their child's bedstead, and were known to propitiate him in the way of improving the odds on dice." Adam was too anxious to offer a comment. He was peering about them as a hunted one would, dreaded, dreading a flash of white amongst the trees. Sir Nathaniel spoke with the wonder of someone of many fewer years. An old man might be imagining things, my boy, but it seems to tug upon my hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, that's, that's number one. <laughs> All right, I... Uh... I think you've got a dwarf war god. We got Romans. We got the word propitiate. I think it's. Uh, I think it's a little too real. Okay, you're saying real. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, number two. Lady Arabella's anger, now fully awake, was all for Ilonga. She moved towards him with her hands extended and had just seized him when the catch of the lockbox, due to some movement from within, flew open and the King Cobra killer (laughs) flew at her with venomous fury impossible to describe. As it seized her throat, she caught hold of it and with a fury superior to her own tore it in two just as it had been a sheet of paper. Wow. The strength used for such an act must have been terrific. In an instant, it seemed to spout blood and entrails and was hurled into the well hole. In another instant, instant she had seized Ulanga and with a swift rush had drawn him her white arms encircling him down with her into the gaping aperture <laughs> oh i think uh, it's a jim tyson almost with the uh, with the gaping maws and the and the rodent killing but uh, i think uh i think the the, the mongoose focus uh, tips me that it's it's fanfic okay not that i i don't doubt that they're going to be prominent in the back half of the book but sure uh, number three, just two more. The <laughs> last one's very short. This one's about the same. Adam crouched upon the threshold of the recess, armed only with the empty mongoose box to face the <laughs> flailing behemoth. When he heard the old man gasp and exclaim behind him, My boy, do you know what this is? It is the tomb of Penda, the heathen reactionary of Mercia, who so vociferously opposed Augustine's mission. His followers must have recovered his stricken body after the wind weighed and interred him in this godless hole. The worm has provided a natural defense against robbers and the curious, an extraordinary find for any amateur archaeologist and student of history such as myself. Gah! Uh-huh. <laughs> Taste the pain, Connor. Taste it! Man, oh man! If it's, uh, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think, I think it's real. I think, uh, I think if it's fanfic, they did their homework. Penda, heathen reactionaries, vociferously wind weighed. I think it's real. Yeah. I think it's real. Okay. All right, and final one. Just a short one. Lady Arabella held out her hand by means to have a turn with Caswell's illustrious kite. He turned his head and scoffed. Kites are no place for a woman's business. A woman of your stature should seek the engagement of her own kind and converse over tea. You see, my lady, men are predisposed to kites. Why, from a young age, boys will bond over such activities. <laughs> I, I think that's fanfic, and I think they're mocking my uh, essay from the, uh, from the live show. Well, let's find out right now. <laughs> it's funny. Here we go. All right, so number one was... Uh, uh, let's see, dwarf war gods yeah. and pro- propitiate and uh-huh. everything. You said that was real. Yes. That was fanfic. What? From Marie. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. I thought, yeah, I, I would have bet, bet on that one. I was confident on that one. Looking up well, propitiate Connor, right now. 
Yes, your um, your hit rate is 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 very poor. Number two, which was her tearing the mongoose in half like yeah. a sheet of paper. You said fanfic. That is real as hell. <laughs> oh, oh my god. I thought that was just pure someone seizing on the mongoose and and being lazy. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is is real. Yep. Uh, The other one you said was real was Penda, uh, the Roman missionaries. Yes. That is Richard's fanfic. Oh, my God. (laughs) How does it feel, Connor? It feels crappy. Has Penda been mentioned before? I think he was. I think he was a king or something. Oh, man. Putting in those... Five dollar words. Well done, Wind Wade. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He had those. Remember the other two worms that were all very well known worms. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, the Icelandic worm. And damn it. Yeah, those actually came up. Uh, those come up in the future again. So uh, as I was hunting for these, I found that. Uh, and, the, and the fourth one was, of course, fanfic. <laughs> and you were, of course, being taunted. That was Janelle. Janelle, yeah, ta- taunting I had, you. For I had a thought. <laughs> Oh but man! Using the kite to taunt you is pretty good. That is, pretty I good. do. I feel a, a great gloom in my soul, and my all the nearby cows have stopped allowing. <laughs> so, Connor, seventy-five percent failure rate. Terrible. All right. Well, I, well done. That was they people stepped up. Um, I, I don't know what to say. I, I'd like to try again sometime. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll do it again. Should we do it in in this book? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Send them in uh, now. That now they know. Now they have data point to for how to fool you. So right. <laughs> now they can really hone in on you. Uh, well, while you were uh, researching all the fanfic and compiling all those uh, dastardly tricks, uh, I sort of went out um, had some time. So I wanted to look up, like you said before, like did, was there was there two books combined into here? Like what the hell was going on with the kite business? And it turns out that, um, you know how, like, the T.S. Eliot had such a great relationship with his editor, um, was it Ezra Pound? Or um, Yes, so, I think that's right. Well, yeah. Stoker, Stoker had, had an agent who was his sort of literary uh, muse almost, who was who guided along Dracula, and then he, he was helping with this process. And that guy kept meticulous notes, like transcriptions of every meeting oh, he had wow. with them. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I poured through these things just trying to find some sort of insight into why, why the hell this book was so bad. And I found it. Um, and there's sort of people, the Stoker Society um, reenacts some of these things because they're really in on this character of the uh, of the agent. They, they, they find him fascinating. So they've taken, um, they've sort of dramatized their relationship through um, reenacting some of these uh, transcripts they have. Oh, cool. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Chesterton guy, mm-hmm. the Chesterton Society. I, I know the head of it, and he knows a guy who does, like, Chesterton recreations, you know, he sure. dresses as him. So this is, this is that, only it's in, uh, they're doing dramatizations. They're doing dramatizations of, yeah, key sort of events in the, in the timeline of, these, of Stoker's novels publication. So this, oh, is, cool. uh, this is one he was going in. Uh, I think it's the first meeting they had after... Um, sort of Dracula had had its moment, and so they were they were searching for a follow up. Uh, Stoker comes in to talk to his agent, um, and he presents to him Lair of the White Worm for the first time. Oh, cool! All right, so this is the uh, the Bram Stoker Society players mm-hmm. recreating uh, Bram Stoker's agent, who yes. they find fascinating. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to that now. <laughs> Hey, there he is, the stokerist with the mosterist. Bram, baby, you're taking her easy. 
Ah, uh, thanks for seeing me on such short notice, Jerry. Hey, are you kidding me? When the guy who wrote Dracula wants a meeting, you take that meeting. <laughs> Mary Shelley can reschedule. Uh, you, you bumped Mary Shelley for this meeting? Uh, she wrote a whole book where readers get the main character's name wrong. Uh, do you have any idea how hard that is? Of course I'll bump her. Want to hear the next idea from the father of modern vampire fiction? Well, uh, yes, yes. I've uh, got a manuscript I'm very excited about. Let's see that. The Lair of the White Worm. Oh, yeah, I love it. Fishermen are going to eat it up. They're a, they're a very under-catered to audience. Uh, it's got gothic elements, uh, some Lovecraftian undertones. Oh, oh, Bram, oh, I'm hyperventilating here. Plus, it invokes mesmer for some contemporary context. Hey, uh, Sheila, Sheila, book a front row at whatever the book equivalent of the Oscars are. And then, and then, it's mostly about a kite. Hold that thought, Sheila. I'm sorry, Bram, what, what was that? About a third of the way through the book, once I've introduced all the characters and seemingly set up the main conflict, the entire focus of the book changes to be about a guy who builds a huge kite. That he talks to. This is a disturbing twist. Surely there's a reason for the kite being built. <laughs> it's the only thing that stops the bird plague. <laughs> of course, a uh, bird plague, yeah. Worse than all ten biblical plagues combined. People will be throwing their books away in fear. They'll have to buy multiple copies. All right, yeah. What, what, what causes the plague? A staring contest. Damn it, Bran. And the kite is also shaped like a bird. Okay, all right. And and uh, he soars amongst the birds with the kite like a hang glider. He sits and looks at it for weeks on end. Sometimes he writes it notes. Mm-hmm. And what are the other characters doing during these weeks? Mm, I don't know. Talking about the white worm. It's not kite-related. It's not important. Well, all right. Harsh words as might seem, but I think we should cut the kite parts, Bram. Are you kidding? Without a kite, it's just a book about a guy who goes on a mongoose bender. Mm-hmm. Now, Bram, I didn't want to say anything when you walked in, but you brought an exceedingly large object with you. I sure did. It's covered by a large tarp, and now that I look closely, there appears to be a length of kite string running out from under the tarp, all the way out the door and down my hallway. Voila! And that's a giant bird kite. Why is that in my office? Merchandise tie-in. White worm comes out, boom, every kid in the world wants a huge evil bird kite for Christmas. That will never happen. Cut it out of the book, man. Come back when you've got something coherent. No, I... I mean, I really think that the kite subplot, uh, potentially main plot, if I'm to be quite honest, is key to the book. Well, that may be the case, but if that's the project, you're going to have to find another agent. All right, look, I uh, I made a terrible investment. I sunk all my Dracula royalties into this kite company. Turns out uh, all they make are huge evil bird kites, and now I've got a warehouse in Borneo full of 200,000 of them. If we can't unload them, I'm ruined. Well, we can't let that happen. I'll tell you what. You sign me in for half of the merchandising money, and I will work my ass off until Lair of the White Worm takes its rightful place next to Dracula in the literary canon. Nobody turns Bram Stoker into a laughing stock. 108 years later.
Uh, yeah, so I think we've got it, right? We, we, why don't you announce the, the next book? Yeah, our follow-up to Trucking Through Time is going to be Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I'm glad they preserved. I'm glad they took those notes. Right. It makes just, you know, it, it puts everything in context. And, you know, we're here sort of, you know, we're, we're just sort of poking fun. We're lampooning this uh, stuff. But with the context, it, it does make it a lot more, uh, a lot less funny and a lot more, a lot more fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always, uh, you know, the making of the sausage, they say it is. You know, we speculate about bad movies, and uh, and often we turn out to be right once we meet the makers. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, interesting. Yeah, hmm. all right, so... Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to turn we'll have to turn back to the uh, Bram Stoker Society that's fascinated with Bram Stoker's yeah. agent again. We'll I see, like their stuff. Well, maybe we'll see where his agent learned to talk like a... You know what the popular culture twenty first century representation of an agent would be. Um, so <laughs> right. he could have been along the lines of an, uh, He's an, way ahead a of a trendsetter. Time, yeah. Um, well, I think we should move on to chapter thirteen, which was titled "Ulanga's Hallucinations." Yeah, enough staring at a chest and sleeping and having a meal and staring at it some more. <laughs> Let's get into some hallucinations. Um, yeah. So we we start off with um, her trying to ingratiate herself so she's she's looking essentially for like a sugar daddy right she she wants to, she's been divorced lady arabella yes you mean. she yeah yeah she needs yeah oh uh, forgive forgive me uh the chapter ulanga's hallucinations is about lady arabella of course <laughs> <laughs> which it opens with the the line during the last few days Lady Arabella had been getting exceedingly impatient. Her debts, always pressing, were growing to an embarrassing amount. Wow. And I just thought, which last few days? <laughs> the, like, the timeline here is just madness. I have no idea what w- the last few days that Lady Arabella's been worrying about her debts. Well, when did that start? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, and, you know, the uh, the the it's been a couple of weeks that he's been looking at the kite. Like, we've been told that. So, like... Uh, maybe they just started like sending her final notices about her debts in the mail, um, type of thing. I, it, but yeah, the timeline is is truly baffling, and it it, it starts to reference again the uh, the incident of the staring contest, which at this point in time is is months ago, I guess. But um, it's it sort of it it talks about how she had tried to ingratiate herself to him um, when she had gone across the room to stand beside him in his mesmeric struggle. Um, so th- th- again, they're calling back this moment where that was sort of her like that was how she was gonna you know go so- go stand beside him as he's hypnotizing a woman uh, and then he'll marry you and your all your financial woes be taken care of. It's a uh, right, right. and they'll stop uh, calling you from uh, you know B and H photo and video for ordering <laughs> that big TV and uh, uh, they'll st- they'll lay off your uh, back a little bit there. Yeah, uh, that is the most backfilled thing ever. You know, we already knew that. Like, didn't he, when he rode in on the carriage, she was with him, right? Uh, so we, yes. We kind of already knew that they she... went to that banquet, like, yeah. Yeah, she's just making a play for him. Maybe he saw I her guess. fondling a mongoose and was like, no thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that white stuff is pretty cool, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so the so she's, she's trying to woo him, uh, even though he is described as not an ardent wooer. Um, in the book, but uh, we 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 learn now about Ulanga, um, who is trying to. Uh, he's interested in her, and this is again is an encounter that is told very poorly, and it's hard to describe what's happening. Um, but he essentially um, observe her observes her observing Edgar, and then at some point in time, he surprises her like on her own property. So. 
she, she says that she had not seen him for several days and had almost forgot his existence, which is um, the way things work with me. Like I, you know, I, I don't see my parents for a couple weeks at a time, and so I start to forget they exist. Um, yeah, object permanence. Yes, uh, she has that, but for, for savages, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and then it says that uh, Ulanga sort of has a how how Edgar sees himself as Bez, the Egyptian god, or Ulanga sees himself as a young sun god, um, which I guess we're being told uh, this is why he's confident enough to approach her uh, because everyone else sees Ulanga as this you know snarling you know bug eating horrible person. Yeah, I uh, I don't know what's going on here. She, <laughs> Ulanga wants to steal the stuff that he has seen in the castle, I guess. He, the the stuff in the she, chest, yeah. She's trying to stop him from it, but she at the same time might want to be stealing it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Because uh, it says she she waited till the lunch gong sounded and she knew the servants would be in the back of the house. Uh, I know that I always use the luncheon <laughs> gong as my sign to commit larceny. Uh, but th- this was a great thing. So th- all this just impenetrable prose about what she was thinking and, uh, you know, just you're puzzling it out. And then you get this. You get a meanwhile. And I just thought, oh, my God, my, my heart is racing. What is happening at the same time? What is it? Meanwhile, another member of the household at Casa Regis had schemes which he thought were working to fruition. <laughs> so meanwhile, in some other place, some unnamed person is thinking about something and it might be going well, the thinking. Right. Great. <laughs> now I'm up to date. Yeah. He's like planning on how to uh, how to how to scam uh, Columbia House for another twelve free uh, CDs for one penny. That's his that's his scheme that might come to fruition. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, here's a vague description of someone else's weird mental state. <laughs> uh, but so Ulanga, this is another thing that's very poorly turned in terms of a timeline. Ulanga essentially comes and confesses his love to her um, as he surprises her. And it, he, the reaction does not go as, as one would hope. It says <laughs> her indignation, her indignation was too great for passion. Only irony or satire would meet the situation. Her cold, cruel nature helped. And she did not shrink to subject this ignorant savage to the merciless fire lash of her scorn. Um, and she says, uh, she gives us some dialogue and you dared you, a savage, a slave, the basest thing in the world of vermin. Take care. I don't value your work worthless life more than I do a rat of a spider. Don't let me ever see your hideous face here again, or I shall rid the earth of you. As she was speaking, she had taken out her revolver and was pointing it at him. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of buried the lead there. <laughs> yeah, especially since we know she's got a hair trigger finger. <laughs> but uh, That's the worst writing in the world. Yeah, it truly really is. It's the, oh, by the way. It's like <laughs> your, uh, your elderly aunt telling a joke and getting the punchline and then going, Oh, and I forgot to tell you that that guy, he had no pants on right. at the time. Uh, he, was a, uh, he, he was a dentist, by the way, so that's why that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but then then it gets to this. So it sort of says, like, Ulanga, you know, you know, told her, um, you know, he, he loved her, like he, he wants to take her away to back to Africa and live with her as a sun god there. But then it says, after all this, after she's delivered her speech, his speech was short, consisting of single words, to Lady Arabella, it sounded mere gibberish. But it was in his own dialect and meant let love, marriage, wife. From the intonation of the words, she guessed. So, so he's essentially grunting at her, from what I gather. 
um, but trying to say, like, let's get married. From the intonation of the words she guessed with her women's quick intuition at their meaning. But she failed, quote, to follow. When becoming more pressing, he continued to urge his suit in a mixture of the grossest animal passion and ridiculous threats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's similar to when I proposed. It's not, you know, if we're looking at it at face value, the, the yeah. grunting so, and uh, pointing and saying wife love, um, you know, I, I was a little nervous. Yeah, he's literally doing the Tasmanian devil routine (laughs) in front of her. (laughs) And then he says, uh, right after you finished reading there, he warned her that he knew she had tried to steal his master's treasure and that he had (laughs) caught her in the act. So I guess her women's intuition kicked in again when he went, <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, yo, you're accusing me of stealing, are you? Oh, well, I'll see you in court. <laughs> Yeah, and I've seen like you know, women's intuition is like you know, oh, I can I can tell when something's wrong. I uh, you know, I can I don't know, I can I can pick up on on that uh, you know, my my child is uh, had a bad day at school or something like that. Women's intuition, in the broadest pop culture sense, does not get uh, deciphered uh, applied to grunt deciphering. <laughs> she has, yeah, she's a, a women's intuition means universal translator from the <laughs> Star Trek universe. <laughs> Uh, but then, you know, Ulanga sort of, I guess, grunts to her that she says has missed the boat. Um, you know, if he, if she would be his, he would share the treasure with her and they could live in luxury in the African forests. Um, you know, I guess that's, yes, there, yeah. there's, a, okay. there's a way then to do that. What's, what's, uh, what's option B? What but, do you got for me? But if she refused, he would tell his master who would flog and torture her and then give her to the police who would kill her. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is this, why don't, uh, usually that would work the other way, I guess. Right, I don't the, know, the, he doesn't have a firm, firm, firm grasp on the British ju- ju- justice system. He's only been there for uh, a couple days or maybe a couple weeks or months. <laughs> right. But right. yeah, the, the, the police are going to take this uh, this this flayed woman. Uh, how did this happen? Uh, beats me. Uh, it was like she was like that when I got here. Um, but take her away and kill her, please. <laughs> All right. Well, you are Mister Caswell. <laughs> you are you are the current it. Edgar. So I wonder. What, so Longo finishes with his. Uh, there was other stuff we didn't read about him jumping up and down and <laughs> grinding his teeth and all of this. And then I wonder if he was done. Then did he put his nose in the air in that haughty way and sort of sniff and you know then walk out with his pride intact? Yeah, after he, that. he was. He he, hmm. he well, made his. I never jaunty but impudent exit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like too that the uh, you could live in internal luxury, eternal luxury. Oh, are we are we are we moving to uh, you know the, the the Caribbean? Are we going to the Maldives? Are we going to uh, Paris? Uh, you know, penthouse apartment? No, no, just just in the African jungle. We're going to be <laughs> right. the, the the place you you normally associate with luxury. And then he like pats her head when she looks a little nervous. Like, look, we'll grind your teeth down, <laughs> sharpen them right up, and uh, you know, I'll teach you how to snarl. You'll be fine, honey. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, Ulanga. Um, that is uh, that's sort of where this chapter ends. No one takes a nap or, or goes to sleep, but uh, it sort of does pick up. Chapter fourteen picks up right where this one ended. Uh, yeah, this one is um, the battle renewed. Yes, <laughs> and so yeah, uh, all these battles so we've been having. Remember the the uh, all the action we've been hearing about. Oh boy, that's coming back in a big way. <laughs> Remember the uh, the battle in like Lord of the Rings? You thought uh, in the two towers there was a battle. Yes, 
<laughs> this battle of by Sauron's uh, castle is even uh, it's this is bigger, right? Yeah, we've got our own uh, Sauron's castle as Doom Tower now. So, um, but yeah, it starts off with Udlanga left the grove with an absorbing hatred in his heart, which is uh, usually a sign that your marriage proposal did not go well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> his lust and greed were afire, <laughs> while his vanity had been wounded to the core. So he's. He's also very vain. He assumed <laughs> he assumed his snarling and spitting and cursing and uh, you know spitting up blood and everything would be received well. Yeah. And uh, so I can see how you'd be. Uh, you know, you wrote uh, you you wrote a love song and you staged it in a you know moonlit night on a boat and then she just goes, "No, I can't marry." I could see how that would sting you to your core. <laughs> it's not uh, none of that is uh, your typical sun god stuff. I don't think either. So. But now Lady Arabella, for her part, Lady Arabella's icy nature was not so deeply stirred, <laughs> though she was in a seething passion. Well, which is those two? Right. What? Yeah. So she's icy and, and thinks nothing of it, but she was in a seething passion. That tight, uh, tight white stuff, I think, is cutting off her uh, circulation and she's having some uh, some mood disorders because of it. Good Lord, it's uh, it's Edgar with the kite again. Do is he find it a deep evil, or does he sit there and write love <laughs> notes to it? I can't decide. Uh, well, speaking of that, she writes a note to Coswell, sort of inviting herself, uh, inviting him to the uh, to the Diana's Grove. She says, "Do not bring Ulanga with you, as I am afraid his face will frighten the girls." Um, <laughs> and then this is this is this is truly truly crazy. It, we use this. Um, t- this description a lot, but it is like an alien describing uh, how two people might walk together. Uh, it says, She turned when she saw him coming and walked beside him toward Mercy Farm, keeping step with him as they walked. It's like, yep, that's traditionally how two people will walk together. They will not, uh, one will not fall back and then run to catch up with the other one. You will usually just sort of keep step with each other as you walk. So if you tell us they're walking besides each other, you don't need to tell us that they're keeping step as they walked. But what he didn't say was the whole time her head was fixed, completely frozen forward, not looking and had no peripheral vision. Because when they got near Mercy, she turned and looked around her, expecting to see Ulongo or some sign of him. He was, however, not visible. <laughs> I like when things are not visible. Right. Like she, she didn't have the ability to just check around her in a perimeter to see if he was there. <laughs> right. She's. Uh, I mean, since he that is what he does. He sneaks in and out of the shadows, and she, you know, you might you might have take that. That look before you walked all the way there, but uh, no, not visible, so therefore not there. Uh, so here's a weird moment. So they found Lilla and Mimi at home and seemingly glad to see them. Uh-huh. Though both girls were surprised at the visit coming so soon after the other. He's been the looking pre- at his kite for weeks. The right. proceedings were a repetition of the Battle of Souls. <laughs> okay. Uh, unbelievable. So, But already I've got big problems because... They, they they haven't happened yet, because then a paragraph later, they're waiting for them to answer the door. Yeah. It's, so how the hell were they happy to see them? What, do they have a banner out front? Oh, it's you guys. Hang on. <laughs> we're really happy you're here. Yeah. And so, yeah. But but why would they be happy? Like, do people realize? I like, don't know. Mimi seems to understand that he's trying to hypnotize Lilla. Uh, the last time he was over, it was immediately caused birds to appear and blight the countryside. Um, <laughs> All right, but here here I want you to. Uh, so here's how it goes. So they're 
they're there. They're waiting for another attack. She's going to help him. They were happy to see them for some reason. Then they ring the doorbell. <laughs> and while they're waiting, she says uh, in, in a voice that carries conviction, so ding dong, uh, this time you should win. Mimi is, after all, only a woman. Show her no mercy. That is weakness. Fight her, beat her, trample on her, <laughs> kill her if she need be. She stands in your way, and I hate her. Never take your eyes off her. Never mind, Lila. She's afraid of you. You are already her master. Mimi will try to... Uh, they opened the door like a minute yeah, ago. Right, yeah. okay. <laughs> oh, she's right in front of me, isn't it? It goes on for another right. two paragraphs. We have an intercom doorbell. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah I, to me, I, I, it was hard not... I was reading that as like a, uh, a Burgess Meredith pep talk to Rocky. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to eat lightning and crap thunder. <laughs> right. Again, still can hear you. Uh <laughs> Uh, but, but, hush. I like she tells him, hush, they are coming. <laughs> I haven't said word one because I rang the doorbell and knew right. not to do that. Um, but the, uh, the it also it also says um, on this occasion, Edgar had only the presence of Lady Arabella to support him since Ulanga was absent. But Mimi lacked the support of Adam Sultan, which had been of such effective service before. And so when there was nothing. What, what the hell did he do? What did he was was deprived of all of his senses except for sight and hearing? Uh, but he just sort of stood there and then relayed everything that happened back to his uncle. And then she still has uh, Lady Arabella who walked and stood next to him. So it's the the again maybe this is like he could have spent a little less time describing how you send notes up a kite and more about uh, psychic energy battles a, a la Mesmer because that's something that many of us don't understand. And how people can simultaneously have mesmeric battles and and be super polite, and then you're happy to see them the next time. <laughs> right. I guess it's the same way as you're happy to see a woman who uh, who shot your uh, shot your rodent uh, fifteen times in the head. You right. Just, uh, look, you know, uh, that's sure. just what we do. Object we, we permanence. It's relationship <laughs> yeah. object permanence. It's another another thing that rears its head in our tails. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you thought. That the kite, uh, sending messages to the kite thing was confusing. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. This bird flock coming in? Oh, sure. I'm not, yeah. What in the name of hell is happening here? So he he hypnotizes Lilla, but then Mimi does something. There's the sound of cooing of pigeons, and then a huge bird flock, uh, pigeons mostly with white cowls, uh, flies in, um, and everyone looks at Castro Regis, where from the high tower, the great kite was flying. But even as they looked, the cord broke and the great kite fell headlong in a series of sweeping dives. Okay, so the kite fell. There's birds making a strange sound, which will <laughs> more of that later. Somehow, the mishap to the kite gave new hope to Mimi. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> What? Uh, so I think we're we're led to believe that and then there's a after that there's a snake charmer sound um which Mimi recognizes cuz she was from Siam or Borneo it's unclear. 
So, but she's very aware of snake charming sounds. She then does the the back to the repel cas wall, and then very quickly the kite is re raised by workmen. Uh, Ed- <laughs> I was baffled by that. <laughs> Edgar has a team of workmen at his house, I guess, with hard hats and cranes <laughs> and stuff, and shirtless guys with those you know hammer belts slung low right. over their slim hips and They're the big uh, boots on, eating and, uh, lunch pails uh, on a girder. Like, <laughs> yeah, this some bitch ain't gonna be easy, but we'll get it done for you, Mister Caswell. The doo ba doo ba doo boo. But then, as all this is happening, there's this psychic double rounded cycle bat psychic battle, uh, pinches cooing snake chamber sounds and that's when uh their father comes in <laughs> and yes. he, he just is essentially doing he's like reading the paper and just looking at him over the thing not noticing any details but uh he uh says by this time they had all recovered their self-possession there was nothing out of the common to attract his attention so it's like your your dad coming in as you're having a sleepover and everyone's pretending they're asleep or whatever um yeah as he came in seeing inquiring looks all around him he said the new influx of birds is it's only the annual migration of pigeons from africa i am told it will soon be over <laughs> so so he gets this this data pretty quickly everyone else was sending their theories in from all the neighborhoods when the first thing came but he's just being told uh that it is a uh, the, the annual migration of pigeons from africa and i he's assimilating of, of course into that the sound of snake charmer music <laughs> yeah he's, right? he's playing the shanai or something I, I don't get that. Why <laughs> so, does he assume and where would he get this report and what who did somebody immediately tele, telegram him? Uh, him a telegraph and yeah. I, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> it's uh so yeah, the, the since we keep saying that it's like a hawk looking at a pigeon, I'm guessing that one of those girls is a pigeon. Uh obviously we're led to believe that the white stuff wearing woman Lady Arabella is a snake, so everyone's just got their theme music or theme sounds that they play like a wrestler entering the ring. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> Uh, uh, but I, I had to actually look up who that guy was when he came. <laughs> Yo, yeah, no, I did too. I had to, I had to look up him and Davenport in this book too because, yeah. uh, I mean, you know. But, but so what he walks in on though, to be clear, which he's not clear, but I think is, is there what, like you're talking about, they're doing the, uh, you know, um, Dracula come here versus the warding it off, like with hands pressed forward, like, and then him backing out, you know, yeah. so. I'm assuming that's happening again. They're not just like sitting at a table and there's a deck of cards. To yeah, they're not playing categories. They're, <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> uh, they're still doing this bizarre thing, and then he walks in, and I, I guess he's just looking down at the paper or whatever. Yeah, uh, the new influx of birds is only the annual migration of pigeons from Africa, <laughs> and they all like freeze and like he never looks up. Yeah, they're. <laughs> oh, I didn't see us. All right, back at it. shifting their eyes back to everybody. They've got a uh, you know. <laughs> Don't tell them about yeah. the thrall. <laughs> well, carry on, you young ones, with whatever you're doing. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, a puzzling encounter, but I'm sure they'll be very happy to see them the next time they come over. Um, I, <laughs> and they'll, uh, I guess, show their happiness from the upstairs, far upstairs window before they take several minutes to answer the door. <laughs> right. <laughs> during which you can have however lengthy a speech you need. Right. <laughs> About killing them. Um, but the, the, we get back to the good stuff very quickly here. Uh, we get back to a, a sentence. Caswell resumed his habit of watching the great kite straining yes. at its cord. Uh, so. Uh, Bram, Bram's got to sell those that kite merchandise, and uh, as as we were all wondering, what what has Adam been doing as these weeks and maybe months pass? Uh, Adam Salton simply marked time. 
keeping ready to deal with anything that might affect his friends. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that uh, pulse-pounding preparation is yes. happening again. <laughs> he also, he called at the farm and heard from Mimi of the last Battle of Wills, but it had only one consequence. He got from Ross... Several more mongooses, <laughs> including <laughs> a second King Cobra killer, which he generally carried with him in his box whenever he walked out. So he is just hoarding mongooses. He's, you know, he's like a, a guy discovering a new hobby, like he's getting into fly fishing. And all of a sudden he's like buying all these flies. And his wife is like, why do you need that one? You have three other flies that look just like. And he's like, well, no, honey, this one's for, you know, this type of trout. And the other one is this type of trout. You wouldn't understand. No one but you can tell the difference yeah. between any of those mongooses. This, like, this completely one- different. This one killed a cobra. Wait, no, it might have been that one. It's the one with the. It's the one with the with the thing on his paw. Oh crap! Do they all have things on their paw? Damn it! All right, I'm getting another one now. This one I'm going to keep track of. This one's going to have killed a cobra too. Honey, were you in my mongooses again? <laughs> Why Did you would put I go the in special there? mongoose back in the other box? I've not touched them since you brought them home. I told you I am not going to take care of them. They're your responsibility if you keep bringing them home. You've killed two of them already. So to be clear, though, Ross is his uh, mongoose dealer, but his his man goes and buys them for him, or does he? That's unclear now. He bought the first one. His man bought the second two. Uh, he got from it. Just says he got from Ross several more mongooses. Several I though. Picture, several three, four. Yeah, I, pi- I picture it's like uh, I used to uh, when I played a lot of tennis. Uh, I would order new rackets, and they'd show up at my door, and. Uh, Bridget would go like, how, how many rackets do you need? And so I had them sent to, to work. Oh, and wow. Just mix them in. With wow. Them. <laughs> they say you don't like, have a problem until you start doing it alone. So he, uh, so he's uh, handing uh, his man a little wad of bills and it's like, go, go, go to Ross and get me a couple more mongoose. Don't, you know, don't make a big deal out of it. Just go get me. <laughs> Sir, what are you doing with these? <laughs> I am 90% sure it's a sex thing at this point in time. As your aide de camp, sir, I must tell you, this is, <laughs> I've worked for a lot of guys. I, three mongooses, I think was the, that was my crazy uncle Larry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've seen this before <laughs> i hate to see it happen to you anyway though uh, uh, back back to uh, the kite uh, yeah uh, yeah Mr. back to Cat- contemplation of the kite yeah so he's 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 sending more things up each try he tried lifting of greater weights uh it seemed almost as if the machine had a sentience of its own we know you told us all day long runners of increasing magnitude were sent up um and it says edward caswell who was now wholly obsessed by the kite again we know we know he's talking to it uh, found a distinct resemblance between the intermittent rumble of the kite and the snake-charming music produced by the pigeons flying through the dry reeds. So that's where we're at, folks. Uh, that's the Bram, Bram Stoker, master of horror, uh, is writing sentences like that. <laughs> He's well, The guy who's obsessed with the kite finds a distinct... Uh, resemblance between the sounds of the Egyptian god statues he's sending up the kites and the snake-charming music produced by pigeons flying through dry reeds. <laughs> Which we only learn now was that was what she was likening to. I thought she was like hearing it in her head or something. Or I, I, So the sound of pigeons going through dry reeds sounds like snake-charmer music, which sounds like... <laughs> The sound of the kite, just so, just to clear that up for you all. It's amazing. I mean, if you, you know, if you had put, you know, if you had been like uh, Dwight, Dwight David Thrash tried his hand at writing a novel, or if this was just some other, published under some other idiot's name on Amazon and someone had recommended, absolutely you would believe this was um, some some guy who plays, you know, 
uh, horn in his church band and has his own CPA. Like it's oh, that absolutely. bad. It's so bad. Uh, here's the other question. So sending the, uh, thinking that he, that it has a mind of its own, the kite, uh, if you are have this fondness and obsession with something that you think has a mind of its own, why is sending it heavier weights going to? <laughs> what is that? What message is he sending there? I see he's sending the little notes like, uh, you know, I love you, dear. Um, but now I'm sending my, you know, my child, whatever. I'm sending yeah. it heavier and heavier weights. He's getting his KitchenAid mixer. He's like, just like that Egyptian god. I see a lot of myself in this too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what that's about, but. I have long since tried to make any sense of the. Uh, I didn't even understand that he was sending it like notes of. I guess I, I only reread it seven times. I didn't reread it twelve times. Uh, no, I mean by the by the second time we by the second kite chapter, I was like, well, this has got to be the focus of whatever we dig up on the dark web, and then it just kept going and going. It is unbelievable that we're still talking about it, and it hasn't ended. It's still there upon this section's ending. So who knows what we have left to come? Well, he found something that he can now use. To, uh, he f- discovered in Mesmer's chest uh, something he thought would utilize with regard to the runners. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> this was a great length of wire, fine as a human hair, in quotes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that, why does that have to be in quotes? <laughs> Coiled around a finely made wheel, which ran to a wondrous distance freely and as lightly. He tried this on the runners and found it worked admirably. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that, that means. He's, the runners go over the string of the kite itself, right? Yeah, yeah. As I as I understand it. So is he talking about the little hangers, like you might have Christmas ornaments on? Fine wire is <laughs> like as fine as a human hair, and then he's hanging that through the paper. And yeah, I you know it, in in some in, in, if it was an adventure game, you know, if the kite string had broken, and then you'd be digging through Mesmer's chest, and you'd find this thing that looks like a, a kite spool and string, and so you then you use that on the kite, and you you run it up again. But the kite is already flying; it's been flying for weeks. It doesn't need more string. <laughs> But this leads to this incredible ending to all of this, where I'm just puzzled. I'm like, what is, I can't figure out what he's doing with this wire. He looked for something heavy enough to keep it still. He placed the Egyptian image of Bez on the fine wire, which crossed the wooden ledge, which protected it. Then the darkness growing, he went indoors and forgot all about it. <laughs> God damn it. Why did you make me think about it then? Yeah, no kidding. It's, it's inconsequential. And didn't he already stand up the statue of Bez? Yes. So I guess the wire is pulling stuff back and forth, but they don't no purpose. Oh man! Well, ah. we get we do get this great description, which is uh, on par with his uh, two sleeps in one uh, in one in two sentences. He spent the rest of the day in the turret room, which he did not leave all day. <laughs> so the you know some of these sentences are are, are are convoluted and 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 bad. This one the logic checks out though. He, if he if he spends the rest right. of the day in the turret room, he's not going to be leaving it. So uh, you know, kudos to Brom when he uh, when he gets that right. Uh, I just have I I, I, had, I don't think I have anything more in this chapter because I was so puzzled by the fine yeah, wire and it, what he was doing it's, and it, it's really puzzling. He he has his che- he his his servant comes back in. He says that one time he saw the old Mister Edgar open it. Uh, and that made the servant so nervous that he fainted. Telling that story about himself fainting causes that servant to faint, uh, and then it turns out that he's dead. 
So that's how yes. that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so be careful if you're ever telling a story about yourself fainting that it might all that might cause you to faint, like uh, like the the barfing in Stand by Me. One, the one person starts barfing and everyone starts barfing. Right. <laughs> uh, before he he called that guy though, there was one sentence that puzzled me. He says so he's doing all this thinking and finding wires and sending things up to it, and then uh, I think he finds something in there. Uh, anyway, he thought it so strange that he determined to investigate the phenomenon and to say nothing about it in the meantime. Say nothing to whom? <laughs> to the kite. He locked himself in his <laughs> turret and didn't leave it for the day. What? Who is he? Not? He's not talking to anyone, right? Yeah. He's I, occasionally making excursions out to try to hypnotize a woman, <laughs> but otherwise he's just hanging out again. Yeah, maybe Either it means he's cooler getting... on the roof or a chair, a folding chair next to a chest. There's the... <laughs> he's getting paranoid of the kite. I guess he can't confide in it anymore. So that's uh, that. You know, I'm beginning to suspect he, he might be going mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well. The... Uh, well, the next chapter is called On the Track, and I, I don't have a lot about it. But um, No, that's very uh, – there's not much there. Essentially what happens is that uh, Adam wants to go check out Lord Edgar. Uh, Lady Arabella is determined to follow Adam, and then Lulanga is determined to follow her. So you get this just sort of like farcical, um, you know, everyone is following each other without letting them know. Yeah, I wondered on some level, is this supposed to be funny or – it's so confusing. But here's a great, uh, this is a great sentence, and I'm glad he spent the words on it. As Adam was engaged on his own research regarding Lady Arabella, it was only natural that there should be some crossing of each other's tracks. This is what did actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Tell him what's going to happen. Tell him yeah. that it happened and tell him, you know, whatever. Yeah. Tell us what you're incoherently going to tell us, uh, then incoherently tell us. <laughs> yeah, so that's the, sort of what happened before where the, the timeline of all these things is is suspect. You know, you, you tell us things that happen and then you tell them. About, uh, it's We've gotten that a lot, but um, it's, it's it's very clumsy. Yeah, so they're following each other around. The only thing of interest I thought was uh, when Lady Arabella uh, absolutely wrecks it here. (laughs) So quickly making her toilet, she quietly left the house. (laughs) I thought that was a new robot pit potential. That that sentence could work for me in just about any book. (laughs) Quickly Quickly. making her toilet. I have to quickly make my toilet. Uh, so yeah, we get that. I think you, you probably have the same as I. There's nothing. It's just them following each other around. It's pretty impenetrable. Uh, three paragraphs of it: Ulanga following her, her following Adam, whatever. The next paragraph: That night, Edgar Caswell had slept badly. <laughs> what? Wait, what? Why? Why do we care? What is happening? Right. Yeah, he's uh well we we'd gone a while without seeing him sleep in back-to-back sentences so people were naturally assuming that he was it was going poorly for him so he had to reassure us of that. I like this uh this statement. Meanwhile uh this is so they're all trying to like pretty much ingratiate themselves to him but this is how he's spending his time. After an early breakfast, he sat at the open window watching the kite and thinking of many things. <laughs> It reminded me of that guy who makes the stew in one of the old uh, mystery science theater movies. What's, oh, the, yeah. what, what's in the soup? Oh, a lot of things. Onions. <laughs> uh, corn. <laughs> chicken. So that's what's going through uh, Ed, Edgar Caswell's mind is just uh, onions. <laughs> oh, a lot of things. Um, 
But yeah, so that's the that's that the 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 big uh, the big lord they're trying to all win over is just up there looking at his kite and thinking of many things, and that's where that chapter ends, I think. Yep, that one has nothing much going for it. She's just visiting him to uh, offer sympathy. And what do we get? <laughs> the next chapter, a visit of chapter sympathy. Si- a visit of sympathy. Oh my God, this <laughs> uh, this one, uh, I think it's supposed to be like a, a really tense action scene sure. or not action scene but a heightened like dramatic scene um uh what do you call the, what, what are those highfalutin movies merchant and ivory film uh, kind okay of people with unspoken but deep deep tensions talking to each other but it is just oh, confusing as very well. confusing it, it starts off very confusing uh it's sort of this is sort of like a uh Frank Sinatra's My Way line about regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. <laughs> he yeah. says, uh, Caswell was general, genuinely surprised when he saw Lady Arabella, though he need not have been after what had already <laughs> occurred in the same way. Okay, man, like you're writing it. So just if you start going down a sentence and realize that it doesn't have to happen, you can delete it. You can, you can start over. <laughs> you're not writing this book in real time. And just to be clear... Lady Arabella is the white worm. She's the snake, right? Uh, to be clear, I, I do not know that that's clear at this point in time. Well, I mean, she's... Uh, she's uh, well, the, the white mon- worm might be mon- a snake. The mongooses are... I mean, she's some manifestation of it or is yeah. connected psychically to it or something. Yes. Uh, so th- that's what she is. She's got this power, obviously, and she you know, it helps in hypnotic attempts and stuff like that. Cold-blooded as she was and ready for all social emergencies, she was nonplussed how to go on. She was plucky, however, and began to speak at once, although she had not the slightest idea what she was going to say. So again, she's like a fainting drawing room lady, like, <laughs> oh, my Lord, I'm so sorry to have startled you. Like, what? what is, who are these characters? But then she starts talking like Lady Macbeth to him in terms of uh, wanting him to kill Ulanga. Oh man, yeah. Well, I, I guess speak- I guess he's saying to uh, to shoot Ulanga, which she was. She already had had her gun pulled at him, but she's yeah. She is doing sort of like a. But what about the law? Um, and he's like, oh, the law doesn't concern himself about. Uh, you know, it, it, yeah. it gets very, very uh, nasty. But uh, yeah, so the guy pretty much says, "Yeah, you can murder my servant. You know, if that if that eases your troubles. No big deal." And uh, her only comment, made with a sweet smile and a soft voice, "I'm afraid of you," <laughs> <laughs> which he doesn't hear, I guess, or doesn't care about if he does hear. Yeah. So this weird description where he just goes off. Th- these are literally some of the worst words I've ever read. <laughs> um. I did make one small note in slight defense. He is supposed to be evil, Ulanga, right? Uh, but even given that, I read these these uh, paragraphs with deep, deep caution. Yeah, it's like so Quentin they, Tarantino's monologue in Pulp Fiction um, <laughs> in terms of how often he, he likes to go to a word that uh, he should not be saying. Yeah, and so, yeah, kill him, uh, subhuman, who cares? The law won't care. He's worse than garbage. Uh, and then she changed in voice and manner and asked genially, and now tell me, am I forgiven? <laughs> so, really, like, paragraphs of the most racist, revolting, vile stuff you've ever read. And then back to drawing room comedy. But light. what about me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, she's concerned that she... Uh, you know, came, was unmannered in her approaching him with sympathy over, and the sympathies over the 
The servant, the old trembling servant dude. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> That's who she's... He's he's moved by that. That's what they say in the... It's like he didn't expect to be so sad about this guy. Like, he didn't even know the guy. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. He asked him what the trunk was once. Yeah. He forgot uh, that he wasn't the Edgar that that guy keeps telling all the stories about. That was his oh, grandfather. God. So he's like, I've known this guy a long time. He keeps telling that all the stories about me. for many, many years. I... <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, once they, uh, once they wrap up that conversation about killing Ulanga, um, they, we transfer back to a, uh, believe it or not, a drawing room conversation between Adam and Sir Nathaniel. I don't know what his uncle is doing or granduncle is doing, but he's pretty much out of the story by this point in time. Uh, Sir why, Thaniel- again, why did they need the two old guys? <laughs> right. They're identical. There's only one of them in the story. <laughs> Uh, but the, uh, Sir Nathaniel starts telling a story and he, uh, he, he, he strains, strains the definition of a word way past its breaking point. I'm going to see if you can pick out which one it is. I have just remembered an interesting fact about Diana's Grove. (laughs) (laughs) And he, he goes on to very much test the the limits of that by doing some history about Diana's Grove. Um, uh, a humble brag about he was once the president of the Mercian Archaeological Society, uh, we get thrilling uh, sentences like this. Now, we know the Romans had wells of immense depth from which water was lifted by the old rag rope. So this is his interesting story. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, this, this enormous, they have enormous deep well holes somewhere inside Diana's Grove, which, as we know from his um, previous uh, airtight logic, you, you get big holes, you're going to get big worms. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this this comes back again. There, th- he is honestly trying to make this uh, push this point as a scientific fact. Yeah, like it only follows, my dear boy. Uh, deep hole, <laughs> you're gonna get sentient worm creatures. Right? Yes. <laughs> Come on, I'm I'm doing the science here, and he pushes that point a number of times. Yeah, and he has been pushing it, I guess, throughout his life. Like this has not been something that he's just thinking of now. He, when he was president of the Mercian Archaeological Society, he would uh, um, make suggestions. He said uh, he would wrote to Diana's Grove's owner, says, I would have had a search made, even excavation if necessary, all at my own expense, but all suggestions were met with a prompt and explicit negative. Um, So back, you know, 50 years ago as a youngster, he was just, you know, sending missives to the owners being like, hey, can I dig up your wells for worms? I think there might be giant worms because you have all those big holes. And they would be like, sir, please stop writing to us. (laughs) Yes. Uh, but he puts uh, a lot of this stuff, and this is a thing he returns to, is that people forget. And then he says, well, maybe later I'll remember, which is not, you know, that's really not how my memory works. <laughs> right. You know, when I, and what he's talking about here is, and he says, you know, I forgot I, that this recollection of mine had died out for a while. You forgot that you suspected your neighbor had a hole by which an evil snake from another dimension could come and go. And he forgot that it stank of death like a fetid swamp. <laughs> and the green lights and everything. Yeah, I mean, you know. And then he would spend the day and try to remember more. This reminded me of, we brought it up on this pod, and I think, is uh, which of that the video game movies is it from? Hey, do you remember the day our parents died? <laughs> <Yes>. Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. I remember? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Now that you it rings it. a bell. Yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. The uh, the 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 you're you're thinking that there is a enormous monster living in someone's well would be a would be a tough thing to to slip your mind like uh, walking out of your house without your car keys type of thing. Um, not quite as understandable as that. 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, as he tells this story and the interesting parts of it, it's like as he comes back late, I'll try to remember more of it. And then he gets back into the room with him and it's like, uh, I was wearing green trousers. No, 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 they were brown trousers. Uh, the rag, rag wool or whatever rope was not, uh, no, that was there. That was, uh, like, you know what? Never mind. You, right. you gave me the big point. There's a giant well that a snake comes and goes through. <laughs> exactly. And they did not seem interested in you getting rid of it. So, but yeah, they, uh, he, he leaves to retire to think of more details, but Adam says, uh, uh, oh no, I, Nathaniel says, if your uncle is not returned by then, I'll join you in the study after dinner, believe it or not. And we can resume this interesting chat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to keep deeming everything that I tell people interesting. I'm going to just be like, I've got a really interesting story that I'm going to tell them about, you know, filing my taxes and see if they ever call me on it. Oh, that's funny. I actually know someone who does that quite a bit. (laughs) Here comes the interesting part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um. Well, yeah, I think that uh, that interesting story takes us to the end of this this section, um, and I think that uh, we uh, we do have a lot of dumb sentences, however, um, so we can cover those. A sentence begins with a capital letter. A capital letter is a letter that's big. A capital letter is not a small letter. A capital letter is big, big, big. A sentence ends with a period. All right, so a lot of these dumb sentences come from our Patreon supporters, which you should join in on because you get every episode early. And uh, I think we should probably run a uh, run a meme contest for uh, Lara the White Worm once we've uh, once we've read. Uh, 50%, two, three quarters of it. So we'll do one of those next week. Uh, so come join them, get in on it. Patreon.com slash 372 pages. Um, a lot of special stuff went up there recently. We both kind of did a little bit of traveling and stuff. So there's extra little tidbits on Patreon that you uh, may not see if you're not a contributor. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so here's some dumb sentences. Uh, first one, Mike and Brian both submitted. Uh, Caswell was generally surprised, genuinely surprised when he saw Lady Arabella, though he need not have been after what had already occurred in the same way. Very dumb. Theodore wrote, he began to inquire of his household where strange lumber was kept. <laughs> It's a good thing to know about your household. <laughs> and then you've got fishes with weird spikes. So he's got strange lumber and weird spikes all in the same house. Uh, this is Richard, possibly the same Richard who fooled me in fan fiction. It seemed like a new misanthropic belief which had fallen on human beings, carrying with it the negation of all hope. He said, come on, it's just a freaking kite. <laughs> uh, George submitted the combination of forces, the overlord, the white woman, and the black man would have cost some, probably all of them, their lives in the southern states of America. I'm glad someone else took note of that because I still absolutely have no idea what it means. Um, John, transmutation of different bodies is, in a way, more understandable than changes in the body that have no equivalent equipose to the other. So there's one of those uh, Bram Stoker $1 words that uh, fooled me in all the fan fictions. And uh, and really, really adds to the excitement of that sentence. <laughs> um, Marie submitted, then, the darkness growing, he went indoors and forgot all about it. Which, uh, you know, that would work, again, as a robot pimp style sentence in, right. in any book you're writing. Uh, Paige said, I suggest we start chronicling the most incomprehensible sentence. Um, but so she submitted one that was, she read four times and still doesn't know what the hell it's saying. The next step of intellectual decline was to bring to bear on the main idea of the conscious identity of the kite, all sorts of subjects which had imaginative force or tendency of their own. 
I agree. <laughs> I, do not, I do not know what that means. I'm not going to read it four times to try to find out, though. I uh, That was my dumb sentence. Oh, wow, I, nice. It was, and it was so dumb that I put it up on, uh, it was on Patreon. Oh, and no, I, okay, that was I did challenge, if you want to go on there, a bunch of people tried to write a worse sentence than that. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know what that means. Uh, Lucas said, uh, as for myself, the bonds of will, which held me inactive, seemed like bands of steel, which numbed all my faculties except sight and hearing. And he said, unless smell and taste are relevant factors, you could just say I couldn't move and nothing would be lost. Right. Uh, Shane said, I'm afraid of you, was her only comment, made with a sweet smile and a soft voice. He just says, I cannot picture a human pulling that off, especially sandwiched between a couple of the most racist sentences ever written. Um, yeah, I don't know why she's trying to... I don't think that's going to ingratiate herself as his future uh, future wife by saying, I'm afraid of you. But, uh, My future wife? <laughs> that's Lisa. <laughs> Uh, and then the last one is from Janelle, who says, Gradually, he yielded to the influences of silence and darkness. And she says, You mean he fell asleep? Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does quite a bit in this sentence, so maybe he was just trying to switch up uh, how we conveyed that to the reader. Um, I have a couple. Oh, this one was good. So this is the, this is the first time the birds arrive. Um, all day long, it would seem that the birds were coming thicker from all quarters. Doubtless, many were going as well as coming, but the mass, <laughs> but the mass never seemed to get less. <laughs> so he's sort of, uh, he's just hedging, I guess, because uh, someone might be like, well, if they were all coming, where do they go? Okay, some of them were flying past as well. But uh, maybe like, uh, unlike most authors, he was very afraid of the fact checker. Right. Like, and it was circled and said, some could be going. Like, <laughs> oh, you're right. I'll, I'll, I'll put that. I'll, I acknowledge that. Here we go. <laughs> so uh, I think, well, I have a couple of them. Uh, somehow the mishap gave new mishap with a kite gave new hope to Mimi. Oh, and my other one I marked was he spent the rest of the day in the turret room, which he did not leave all day. So. <laughs> 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 Fun uh, stuff. You didn't, you didn't choose made her toilet quickly, huh? Uh, no, I mean, I liked that sentence. It was quite dumb, but it was uh, <laughs> she quietly left the house. <laughs> uh, and mine was already spent and is uh, immortalized, on the again, on the Patreon. So. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think that was great dumb sentences. If you have incomprehensible sentences you want to send us, uh, any other emails in general, we'd be happy to read those. We had a lot to talk about this time, but... Uh, um, you know, as we as we tend to do, and remember, Connor, twenty five percent success. Well, I mean, on real look, or fanfic? I know fewer data points, all of that, et and, cetera, et cetera. Like, and people are going to be like, and then the the one that you got right was like a joke one. Like, okay, yeah, re- you read it, you picked them. If I pick ones that are, I think are jokes, which I don't do because I know you're going to get them right. And uh, sorry, I got a little worked up. Uh, the point look, is, I got I got it right. I had to have a few more in there, so I chose one that, yes, I knew you were going to get. So it was really, it's like when you do uh, uh, testing, you put an obvious one in there to make sure that it's, it's not just, you know, pressing buttons and sure. circling uh, the control. A, B, C, D, or the- e. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my control, and you you got it. So that just only proves how terrible you were on the rest of them. So that's <laughs> um, what I think. Well, yeah, so I think for next time we're going to read through Chapter 23. That will put us... Uh, uh, three quarters of the way through the book, and um, I don't know. Are we still going to be flying kites? Uh, are we still going to be uh, digging up worm wells? Are we going to? I mean, we got you know her tearing a mongoose and have to look forward to probably some more um, repugnant racism. So you know, uh, embarrassment of riches. I want more 
I'll, I'll be honest for my wish my wish list. I want more snake mounds, okay. and I want more uh, mongoose taxonomy, and a lot less flying runners up cuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not tracking that. <laughs> maybe it's a, just not it's not landing with me. Yeah. Well, maybe oh, man. If we if we had a kite, we could we could go out and see how uh, if we could, we're able to do that ourselves. But um, well, hang sure. on, Connor. I just found a, a, th- a thin wire here wound <laughs> around a, a a really cool wheel. So I think we're good on runners. We All can right. do that later. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Patreon exclusive. We'll do some runners. <laughs> right. Got to find out what a runner is. Yeah. All right, but yeah, so next time we're reading through chapter 23, I think I said that, but uh, yeah, uh, thank you everyone else who wrote in, who supports us, and this has been 372 pages, we'll never get back. So long, everyone. Bye-bye.